everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 215. As always, I'm hey. Hey, as always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the little and large of LA, Jesse and L- Alex. Little and large? Yeah. Little and large. I don't know. What is that? that? Sid Little and Eddie Large. Dude, I have never heard of Sid Little or Eddie Large. Not at From all. From 1978 to 1991, they had a show on TV. That sounds like some Neil Gaiman characters, bro. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell well, you about that. Looking a little large now, I'm going to let you know, Alex is definitely more of a little because <laughs> the guy in the large looks like an old drunk. And I feel like oh, it's that's you. I've, <laughs> I've never felt more represented. Real talk, Sid Little, in this picture on Wikipedia, that is exactly how my brother dresses every day of his life. My, <laughs> my younger brother. That is exactly. He looks like the young version of, of uh, Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. People do not believe that we're brothers when they look at us, but we are. Yeah, welcome back, little and large. It's good to see you. Uh, it's it's been a, a a tense week of waiting to see what happens in the JFK theory. Uh, Spoilers: He gets shot in the head right at the end. Oh, what? Yeah, I know, I know. Sorry. Yeah, Alex, this is yours. Uh, I'm going to hand you the reins and just enjoy the ride at this point. All right, that's right, friends. Like clockwork, just as I predicted, I would. I have now proven to you. By doing two episodes in a row without any breaks, that my momentum is continuing unabated. Welcome to a second part of this tidy little two-parter Ooh, okay. here on the show. Two-parter. And speaking of keeping things tidy, one of the cleanest, most based things that you can do as a listener and enjoyer of the show is to come over and support us with money. Yes, entirely by choice over at patreon.com slash pod. And I say by choice. Because really, I'm not here to entice you with tales of ad-free episodes, weekly minisodes with up-to-the-minute paranatural headlines and epic stone-related mysteries. Uh, Our excellent new movie commentary show, Rotten Popcorn, not here for that. Not here to convince you about heebie-jeebie, cutie-patootie, bespoke visual emanations from the always fantastic Studio Melectro. Free merch, not here to talk to you about early ticket sales, Discord, or more. No. All I'm here to do today is speak to that one disgustingly rich listener who, in this age of capitalist ruin, will shine some of their hard-earned opulence down onto our show as a security blanket against these brutal and uncertain times, you know, to make sure we keep on seeking the truth here on the airwaves forever. That's all we do here on the airwaves. We just seek the truth. That's right. Patreon.com slash Pod. If $10,000 is just chup change to you, why not waste it on us? You can tell me what the truth is. Yeah, I'll take, I'll accept your truth for 10K a month. Find us, find us now at patreon.com slash pod. However, if it's racist, we're keeping your money, but also not believing what you tell us to believe. In. Yeah, so don't just, be so racist. Putting that that's out there. If you think that's you're going to be. General. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Chiluminati pod. No racists allowed. That's our one. That's our <laughs> slogan. That's our slogan. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yes, folks. It's that time again for the second. And final part of our JFK 2, the Oliver Stone series. Yet another set of episodes about that late, great John Fitzgerald Kennedy guy. And more specifically, about a theory heavily championed by AAA Hollywood director Oliver Stone, among others, that a conspiracy among rogue elements of our intelligence and military communities out of New Orleans was ultimately responsible for the whole shebang. And again, shoutouts to at Deanna Writes Inc., our researcher Deanna for the absolute essential research she did for this project. Literally could not have done this on my own. Uh, I was just talking to Mathis about this before. It is absolutely impossible to research stuff about JFK compared to any other topic just because of the sheer volume 
of writing out there and the sheer volume of research being done and the absolutely different conclusions that everybody has, the way people misinterpret things and change things. It's all so confusing. And to do this right, it takes a very, very large amount of juggling of different things. So shout outs to her for that help. It really, really, really really help and props to you too there alex because you're taking the jfk thing the way you're doing it is very impressive because deeper than a lot of other podcasts that i've listened to cover it in the past uh you're doing each you're giving each theory like it's full fucking due it's getting you know multiple episodes for the theory it's 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 very deep research so fucking props i've never thank you i've never concerned myself with whether or not it's true right in any Mm -hmm. of the episodes that i do right so jfk is very perfect for this because I need to just play the part of each person who believes in this theory first, and then I can, like, look at it, and then I can tell you, I can, like, look into it and tell you what happens, right? So yeah. it's like, it doesn't matter to me whether it's true or not. And I know that sounds daunting, but what? What's the matter? I've never concerned myself whether it's true. It's such a statement. I'm just saying I don't mind if it turns out that the theory itself isn't the right theory, right? I'm just here to tell you what the theory is, right? Yeah. Sure. And it sounds intimidating, but you don't actually have to listen to the first set of episodes if you don't want to. I don't think. I think you should. I think it's probably good to listen to any podcast that comes out in order if you want to get complete understanding of everything that ever happens. Uh, but you don't need it if you have a basic working knowledge of this, again, very heavily covered historical event. Uh, but if you want a nice background on not just the history, but the various popular elements that make up the mystery around the assassination... That's when you should check out episode 139, episode 158, episode 159, episode 60 of our show before starting this one. And I guess for sure, you should probably go back and listen to last week's episode. Like, this is just part one and part two. You should go back and listen to that. Uh, Since that one and this one are actually connected. Uh, And you should probably watch the movie JFK if you haven't already. I kind of gave you that homework last time. You get the idea. You should have watched the movie. I'm pretty sure everybody who has a conspiracy bone in their body has seen this movie at some point now. So let's get into it. Let's hit you with the disclaimer. John F. Kennedy was a real person, and his assassination was a real act of violence. Therefore, we're going to be discussing some seriously disturbing imagery and subject matter throughout the course of the series. This was the high-profile murder of a sitting U.S. president. Videos and pictures you Google after listening to this may disturb you, so proceed with caution. It also happens to be one of the most notorious moments in world history and therefore extremely ingrained into our national culture at all levels, not to mention world culture. And so sometimes it's easy to forget that this really happened, and it wasn't that long ago. Ago. And I'm sure that at some point during this, one, two, or all three of us, probably Mathis right now in the immediate future, are going to be flipping about this in ways we haven't been about other murders on the show. So Let's let me apologize it. for that now and in advance and in after the fact, because I probably have already done it. Uh, and also, please remember that until the very end, I'm going to be reporting, just like I said, on what other people think happened that day. If you don't like what you hear, if you disagree with what I'm saying right now, please remember, do not shoot the messenger. I'm here to tell you what Oliver Stone thinks and whether what I and what I think of what Oliver Stone thinks. I'm not here to say what I think happened, at least until the end of this whole maxi series. I will that when I when I do tell you what I really think. Uh, and, and finally, even though I promise I'm going to try and do this to the best of my ability. Remember, I am not an expert. None of us are experts. I'm just an Internet comedian. We are just dudes with beards on the internet with a podcast, so I'm probably going to make some mistakes, maybe even some egregious ones. So again, let me just apologize for that in advance. And now, without further ado, no ado at all, let's get this show on the road. It's time for JFK 2, The Oliver Stone, Part 2, The Facts versus Oliver Stone. But 
before we get into all that, instead of teasing you with more clues about the tons of episodes I'm imminently working on, I wanted to start us off with a quick look at a different, much more simple JFK mystery as an amuse-bouche, which is something I've always said is essential before a huge brain meal, since it ties everything all together thematically and serves as such an effective example of how we can be made to trust something based on its structure even though it might grossly distort the facts, or more specifically in the case of JFK, make things that aren't related seem related purely by the way that they are presented. For this little mini thing right here at the beginning, I want to shout outs to Time Magazine and Snopes for this one. Uh, first things first, just under a year after President Kennedy was shot, uh, on uh, Friday, August 21st, 1964, this article appeared in Time Magazine, and Jesse's going to read a quote from it now to get us all on the same page. Wherever collectors of odd facts congregate these days, the conversation almost invariably turns to the uncanny parallels in the lives and deaths of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Oh my God, I know where I've heard this. However, <laughs> it started, it is ended, it added up to a compendium of curious coincidences. Last week, even the GOP Congressional Committee newsletter with a circulation among 15,000 Republicans, joined in the game with its own list. There were no political motives, explained newsletter editor Edward Neff. We just thought of them as interesting. Yeah. Now, obviously, as Mathis already kind of said, if you're the type of person who does things like read every plaque at the city park, mm. uh, it's possible you've already heard about at least some of these uh, since after this first time, this kind of list kind of like spread to the ends of the earth as a way way sort of like pre-internet meme type of article uh but in case you aren't familiar uh first let's have mathis lay out the most common list of coincidences and then we'll talk about each one uh using the excellent article are these coincidences linking kennedy to lincoln real by david mickelson on uh, snopes.com so let me grab this for you Mathis. yeah here. it's fascinating it's the same uh, you know before we go into it i believe it's kind of like the same mindset that people have who kind of like believe, oh, famous people die in threes, where it's like, not yes. really, but there's a pattern if you just kind of look for one because you can find a pattern in anything. Right. Uh, all right, let's see. Abraham Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. John F. Kennedy was elected to Congress in 1946. If it wasn't John F. Kennedy, though, it would have been somebody else. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860. John F. Kennedy was elected president in 1960. The names Lincoln and Kennedy each contain seven letters. Both were particularly concerned with civil rights. That's debatable about Lincoln. Both wives lost their children while living in the White House. Both presidents were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the head. Lincoln's secretary, Kennedy, warned him not to go to the theater. Kennedy's, sec Kennedy's secretary, Lincoln, warned him not to go to Dallas. Both were, I want, yeah, like, oh, never mind. Both were assassinated by Southerners. Both was, were succeeded by Southerners. Both successors were named Johnson. Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in eight, uh, 1808. Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded Kennedy, was born in 1908. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. Both assassins were known by their three names. Both names are comprised of 15 letters. Both ran, uh, Booth ran from the theater and was caught in a warehouse. Oswald ran from a warehouse and was caught in a theater. And finally, Booth and Oswald were assassinated before their heels. And that is actually not true. He got caught in a movie theater. Yeah, they're uh, like yeah. a little loose with the facts on yeah. these. Uh, yeah. Only a little. Yeah. Admittedly, though, at first glance, it feels pretty good, right? Like, well, you yeah, can it's see... the same thing with the uh, Flat Earth, right? If you read something and then don't actually do any research, it looks great. 
Yeah, some of the claims made you can like kind of tell are true without having to do any research just because you understand like math and you can count, right? Yeah. And uh, since it's a pretty interesting topic that you kind of really want to be true, just because it makes the world feel exciting and mysterious. And, and following a script and makes <laughs> yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. That's already probably enough to start you like fantasizing about telling other people this, like getting ready to like bust this out at like, you know, Sunday roast dinner for your your parents or whatever just blow people's minds with this crazy stuff but now let's revisit that snopes article and see what they were able to figure out with a little bit of googling and some real research uh were they actually both elected to con uh, uh were they both actually elected to congress a hundred years apart in 18 and 1946 or as president in 18 and 1960 absolutely they were but the fact that exactly 100 years from each other feels important has nothing to do with anything besides the fact that, one, they both served in the same country's government, where almost every president's trajectory is extremely similar and subject to the same election year rules, mm -hmm. and two, simply just that humans think round numbers like 100 are neat. Uh, yeah. You know, it's the same thing with Andrew Johnson and Lyndon Johnson's birth year. They're like it's, almost it's the same ages as lincoln and kennedy because they're also vice presidents so i mean it's it's also a chase a case of cherry picking yeah abraham lincoln and kennedy weren't the only ones that were elected to congress in 1846 in 1946 they were one of many yeah exactly and just because of the same ages same jobs like the years being close or the same is not really actually that crazy, right? It's not actually yeah, no. It follows the law. Yeah. <laughs> also, almost everything else important that happened to these guys did not happen exactly 100 years apart, uh, right. like their births uh, or their deaths or their ages, just to name a few huge things. So, like, what are we even saying? Like, Lincoln also got elected twice. Kennedy did not get elected twice. Uh, they had totally different lives and political careers. Kennedy tried. Uh, Lincoln tried a lot of times to do a lot of things and failed a lot of times. Kennedy just kind of like was charismatic and successful and known and just kind of shot right through everything and just bang, went straight to president. The two election dates are actually more likely to be linked than not. And that's just more accurate to say than anything else. Well, yeah, there's like less, less randomness in terms of like election dates because of the way the country works. So, yeah, of course, they were fucking elected around like 100 years apart. Uh, now, let's talk about the fact that their names both have seven letters. Is that crazy? I mean, yes, that's insane. That's stupid. Yeah, it's they're insane in the, like, the stupid way. I mean, right. Well, first of all, average number of letters in a presidential surname, 6.64. So seven, them both having seven is like exactly what you would expect. Do you think that's do you think that's like a subtle? I don't know, like something in the American ethos where we're like, I would call it marketing data. You know, if it. I'm Johnson, more likely to vote Clinton. for Smith yeah. than Smithson. You know what I mean? I like, don't know. Yeah. Like, it's interesting because I, I remember learning this in, in like high school English or something. It might not necessarily be like the number, but like the syllables and how good it feels to say and hear that name. Sure. So, sure. yeah, just like, you know, just saying like uh, Abraham Lincoln is a nice three, two. Mr. Lincoln. Where Jesse if you go, Cox. Where if you go something that's like right. two syllables, two syllables, it doesn't sound nearly as, as interesting. But right. Jonathan Kennedy. Like, or John Kennedy. It's, it's all more fun. Yeah. It, it sounds better. Also, Abraham and John aren't the same length. We can go look at video games as a great example with uh, that, that game, Phoenix, whatever, that Ubisoft release that was actually really good, but like nobody knew what the fuck it was and it had a terrible name and nobody really cared. It's interesting because when you think of Abraham Lincoln, right? 
people say Abe Lincoln. That takes mm-hmm. it down to three. It's just easier right. to say. Abe Lincoln. Yep. Right? Right. And right. like, it's, there is no Jonathan Kennedy. It's John no, F. Kennedy. It's John. Yep. Yeah. It's John. That's yeah. why it's John F. JFK. One, two, three. Like, because John Kennedy, you don't want to yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. I'd vote for a Jesse Cox. That sounds yeah. good to right. me. That's clean. Boom, boom, boom. It just is. It's, Alexander Fasciani's not getting any votes, though. You know what I mean? And yeah. Michael many, Martin. It, the two, Michael Martin's better than two. Alexander. Mike Martin Fasciani. would work, though. Mike, Mike Martin's right in there. Yeah. 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 Alex Foch. Nope. Uh, all right, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't you're, call you you're the fact. Like a, I don't know, like a chief of staff. I'm, I'm so the secretary sorry. of dinner time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, they, Lincoln has no middle name. Kennedy, Kennedy has the middle name Fitzgerald. There's nothing similar about their names. Uh, and Oswald and Booth having 15 liter long full names. Yes, technically that's true. None of their single names are the same length. Lincoln's name isn't the same length as Kennedy's. Johnson's isn't the same length as johnson's even though they're both last name is johnson uh but before mathis thinks about the president's dick for one more second let's keep don't, moving don't, don't is it yeah is it really wild that two presidents of the united states the famous free country would both be particularly concerned about civil rights especially when even like today it's kind of the main thing we ever talk about it's like our big shame as a nation is that there's a huge portion of the people here who just think that not everyone is equal the two of them worked it out bro they solved it you think it's done we think we're wrapped up 100 years apart problem solved yeah you're right it's it's like every president since has been like particularly I- interested in uh civil rights ever since lincoln pretty much also yes it's true that both technically lost children while president uh, but does the coincidence seem nearly as uncanny when you consider mortality rates at two entirely different points in history or the fact that Edward Lincoln died of tuberculosis at age four while Jackie Kennedy lost her baby to a miscarriage and a premature birth before it ever was even alive outside of the womb? Bro, it's fantastic. Everything old is new again. Birth rate, birth mortality rates in Indiana are dropping real quick so much so they just wiped out the people who keep track of that stuff. We're, on, we're heading back to the 50s. I'm I excited. can't wait. I can't I wait. I sent you guys that delightful video the other day where the guy from like 1973 was like, here's the future, and it's right on the oh money. Oh my God, he is dead on. Like, he's like, <laughs> he's like 2020, people are going to be so fucked. Yeah. And it's like, we are. Oh my God. That's when the fuckery right. starts, is 2020. Yeah, like, by 2050, we'll be in the worst period in history. And I'm like, society will collapse as we understand it. Yeah. Civilization as we know it will be gone it will be erased he's basically it's like it basically is just like it makes sense right it's just because we're not you know the population is growing fast and we're not doing anything to get ourselves off of the old school ways of supplying people so but the fact that he nails 2020 so perfectly is it's gross it really is upsetting you're like oh no he's like i'm sure we'll figure something out but you got to be brutal when it's already so bad to shock people into doing stuff <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, bad. yeah, we'll figure stuff out. One single tear. He's like, yeah, he's like, luckily we've discovered this with 150 years to spare, and it's like, well. Also, let's uh, let's go back to being shot on a Friday. If you actually ask the es- experts on the fact that they're both being shot on a Friday, if that's like a coincidence or not, it's actually a fairly high one in seven chance. I know somebody will tell you it's one in 49. That's actually not true. Uh, And the fact that both guys were shot in the head by people who were trying to kill them is like, I mean, the natural place that you would expect them to be shot. Where else would you shoot? Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention that one of them was point blank with a pistol. And the other is like one of the most famous long range carbine rifle gun shots in history. Uh, Like totally two two headshots that do not resemble each each other at all. Uh, Also, Probably in an attempt to massage the truth a bit, a few of these ended up as just straight up lies in the end. Like, for example, 
Kennedy did have a secretary named Evelyn Lincoln, which, by the way, is a very common last name in America, uh, who did warn him about going to Dallas. But Lincoln simply did not have a secretary named Kennedy, like the list says. Uh, Also, warning the president of assassination attempts happens way more than you think it does. Uh, As we know from this show, there were at least two other threats to Kennedy's life just in November of 1963, not to mention all those other times he went outside in public uh, with his, like, weird Popemobile car with no Popemobile cover. Yeah, he always insisted on not having one. Yeah. Speaking of which, the idea of Oswald shooting Kennedy in a warehouse and running to a theater is sus, because he shot him from a warehouse. He didn't shoot him in a warehouse. He shot him in his car from a warehouse outside. And uh, the idea of Booth shooting Lincoln in a theater and then running into a warehouse is sus because it was more like a shed where people cure tobacco. It wasn't really a warehouse in the way that you're probably imagining it. And Booth was in there for days while Oswald was in there for like, I don't know, a couple hours, an hour. You know, he wasn't in there for very long. Uh, and yes, both Oswald and Booth died before being taken to trial. But to say they were both assassinated is kind of crazy. Oswald maybe was assassinated uh, in a way, right? But Booth was shot in the neck by a trooper outside the barn he was hiding in while they were already in the middle of burning down the barn to smoke him out of the barn. So that's just more like a cop taking the law into his own hands and shooting someone for a sus reason, which I hate to say it literally happens all the time, even now. And if you call that an assassination, you're kidding yourself. Uh, Similarly, Booth was born in 1838. He was not even born in 1839, so that's only 99 years from Oswald's 1939 birth. That which makes it less cool. It's, it's not, a, I guess not, even though double nines is like, I guess, like, could be cool. Like, depending on what you're interested in, you could say 99, exactly 99 years. And though both guys had three names, just like most Americans probably do, uh, most Americans do have a middle name, statistically. Uh, the calling them by their three names thing didn't happen until after they shot the president, likely out of courtesy to all the other folks named Lee Oswald and John Wilkes right. in America, who suddenly mm-hmm. ended up in the Adolf Gislaine Elon yeah. Club, uh, just trying to make the best of their shitty name that they got from a time when those people weren't awful, you know? Uh, and another strategy that's often used is saying, like, just vague enough things in your wording to imply oh, that yeah. something's significant without committing to anything concrete. That is absolutely key in, in these people's, like, um, the way they speak to you and try to convince you that they're actually not real, is everything is super vague. And unless you know on the spot the specifics, it's hard to question it. Exactly. So take the use of the word Southerner in this list. Saying sure. Oswald and Booth were both Southerners does technically work because Oswald was born in New Orleans and Booth was a sympathizer of the Confederate States of America. But Booth was actually born in Maryland and Mm. described himself and saw himself as a Northerner who merely understood and aligned his interests with the South, while Oswald's motivations literally had nothing to do with the fact that he was born in New Orleans at all. It was not a regional politics-based reason. He's, like, supposedly anti-Kennedy's policies. They don't actually... We don't actually have a motive from Oswald exactly because he was <laughs> killed way too soon uh, to, to talk to him enough, right? Uh, and then next, uh, when they say that they were both also succeeded by Southerners, this again is technically true. They were both succeeded by Southerners, but at the time it would be true of almost any Northern president from these time periods because unlike today, 
vice presidents were usually chosen from the opposite side of the aisle because you had to balance out the ticket so that everybody would vote for you. Right. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Uh, Lincoln is from the North and he's a Republican and he needs like a Southern Democrat to like get on his ticket. Right. Uh, to like kind of balance out being JFK was a Northern boy. Yeah. And he yep. needs that. So he needs that Southern Republican on that ticket, right? Same so thing with, uh, like, I mean, it, it's the same thing. It's always been like, Biden is an old man, an old white dude. So he picked like a young black woman to be yes, on his exactly. ticket. Like, mm-hmm. It's a balanced thing every single time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also the fact that they were both named Johnson is not that amazing when you consider that it's one of the most common last yeah, names in America. It's like Smith. It's like the second one after Smith. It is the second. Yeah, Smith yeah. is number one. Johnson's number two. It is not so much a huge coincidence as it is one of the more likely possible outcomes considering the spread that we're dealing with, right? So, like, you guys get what I'm trying to say here, right? Like, would you describe the relationship between Lincoln and Kennedy's lives as spookily uncanny? What do you think about no. that? No. 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 It's a- if there's any similarities, it's purely coincidental. And again, we've had this conversation, too, where... Just take a minute, take a step back, think about how many people are on this planet, how many actions everybody are taking all at the same time. Coincidences are just mathematically and statistically going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, but also let's look at the list that we were given. Some of the most outrageous claims are also just lies. Mm-hmm. But like the ones that were, it's like they were born the same, like 100 years apart lie. They just, right? like, it's, it's so slightly a lie. It's still definitely a lie, but they just... Just nudge the reality to the truth to 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 make their to make their little thing true, right? It's like you can take any two things. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, saying Lincoln and Kennedy have seven letters. That's like years ago in 2012. Crendor and I and our our other podcast would make a goof about how you know it was the Mayans, like 2012, right? That big thing. And our joke was that Ma- the Mayan robots would come back. And then one day we realized that Mayan robots is the exact same letters as Barack Obama. And we were like, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Like that. You can do that. It's a, it, yeah. Anyone can do that with anything. Yeah. Or yep. watch somebody do like the numerology. You can like go see those people, those QAnon people, just like whipping out their crazy numerology stats. Dude, and stuff. Like, if you watch, you, truly, if you watch it, it's like the numbers make no sense initially. They keep subtracting and subtracting until eventually there's something there. And like, and that's my proof. There's a great uh, Klepper clip of him talking to like a numerologist QAnon person where you're just like, whoa. If you get offended because we insult QAnon, you might want to go see a therapist. I Maybe. don't have any sympathy for you, can- you other than that you got completely tricked. I feel like if anyone would donate $10,000, there'd be a QAnon supporter because that's gullibility that I'm here for. All right. Well, if you if we start talking about JFK Jr., you know, then you'll know why. That's the gullibility <laughs> I'm here for. If you if, if we're just kicking back on a beach somewhere talking about JFK Jr., <laughs> if we plan a field trip to Dallas, Texas, with no uh, restaurant reservations involved, you know what we're doing? <laughs> with no food involved, you know why oh, we're no. in Dallas. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Oliver Stone and JFK now. Uh, last time uh, we learned about the situation abroad with Kennedy and the Cold War and the case for whatever rogue powers there may have been or even continue to be within the United States government and the acts that they might have had to grind against him, which led to his eventual alleged black, black ops assassination. I could have spent 100% of a summary of this movie talking about this part of the movie where this guy comes out and tells you all this, but instead... I just used actual history and notes to give you the real deal of it. So now you guys have a good base to work from. And so I'm not going to go super deep into that situation again when we get there later, but you guys know it. And uh, today, 
now that you've hopefully checked out slash pirated the JFK movie like I suggested, which again, you should really consider doing before we listen to this. Uh, I think it's streaming somewhere too, I'm not sure. Uh, but I recommend bootlegging the director's cut if you can or stealing somebody's password uh, to do that because uh, I don't want to give anybody any money for this, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, we're going to be re-examining the crucial details of this case uh, as presented in the movie and in the documentary JFK Revisited that came out in 2021. The people involved and the way certain events were presented, see how they may not be accurate to the facts of what actually happened on that day with Lee Harvey Oswald on November 22nd, 1963. And simultaneously, we are going to reflect on the Warren Report and the events of the real-life Garrison trial Oliver Stone uses as the sort of centerpiece from which to razzle-dazzle us with his entire grand theory of conspiracy, and to protect us as we go from the stupefyingly persuasive magic of cinema, we're going to be heavily referencing the book Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy by Vincent Bugliosi, which today is going to serve us as a fact-based antidote to Oliver Stone's confusing and obscuring of historical events as laid out in the movie JFK and restated in JFK Revisited, which, if I haven't mentioned it already, is basically like a four-hour version of the movie with Whoopi Goldberg doing voiceover instead of expensive actors hired what? to play Cajun legal assistants. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg Wait, is the narrator. What? It's, it's true. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Amazing. Instead of instead of like writing a movie with a bunch of lawyers like Michael Rooker being like, so what you're saying is this guy never ever, like he saw these two guys in a bar? Like that's like what the real movie is in the in the other one. It's like chill ass will be Goldberg saying exposition and both films uh, have the same amount of Don, Donald Sutherland in them, which is about 20 minutes. <laughs> Donald Sutherland spends about 20 minutes in both films. He's got like a speech impediment nowadays because he's pretty old. So it's like kind of weird in the new movie because you can hear that he's like not doing so hot on the mic. But you can know, you know, he's there because he played X in the movie. If you've seen the movie, but we'll talk about X more later. Uh, and anyway, uh, today's largely going to be based around the information found in the 33rd section of Bugliosi's book, which is called Jim Garrison's Prosecution of Clay Shaw and Oliver Stone's Movie JFK. Uh, so if you want all the background on this and to dive much, much further into all aspects of the case, do yourself a favor. Go out and buy this giant book. Uh, there's physical and there's digitals out there because on top of all the stuff we're covering here, there's about 1,500 more pages of this like cynical, almost toxic, well-researched goodness to go through and it's just much better to do uh, uh reading it for yourself than for me to try and focus all of it into an easily digestible story that we can get through in a couple of hours which is pretty much exactly what oliver stone did uh to get him into this whole big mess in the first place <laughs> uh and just real quick in the interest of hearing out both sides and because it was such a hit last week uh here's another quote uh, from a negative review of the book by University of Georgia School of Law professor Donald E. Wilkes Jr. I don't remember who read this last time, but whoever wants to read it, uh, just take this one here. I, I think it was me. <clears throat> to those who have read extensively about the JFK murder, Bugliosi's hypocritical proclivity? That's how you say proclivity? For cherry-picking evidence is, in the pungent words of assassination investigator Jerry McKnight, as inconspicuous as a tarantula on an angel food cake. Yeah, now we've heard, now we've heard, you know, we've done our, our part in discrediting Bugliosi enough that, you know, I'm not giving him some sort of biased treatment we heard from both sides. I read that entire complaint. It's actually quite long. And though I read it and it's, he does make some salient points, it's not enough to disqualify the work, in my opinion. He reads like an old Southern, like, uh, what's his name? Fuck, I lost his name. It's gone but I'll remember it. Uh, an old Southern Jordan Peterson. That's how he reads to me. 
He reads to me like an old Southern Jordan Peterson, where he like uses big words to make you sound like make it sound like he's smarter than he actually is. Well, I'm just a small town Peterson. He's he's pretty well read. He he's not he's not like a total <laughs> dick. I just love how angry he is at this guy. I don't know. I I I just I can't get over the toxicity. I didn't total. I can't totally help myself even even in this episode. Dude, there are absolutely whole ass like countries worth of alliances within the JFK conspiracy. Who believes what? And it's a lot like the UFO world where nobody works together. Everybody thinks they're right and they all fight each other. And then if anybody gets funding, they get pointed out as a sham and they they no longer are trusted. It's like Tupac and Biggie vibes, but like guys talking about Woody Harrelson's dad. Uh, but yeah, we're uh, we're That's a whole other theory yeah. we could do one day. Tupac's still alive. Dude, don't even get me started. Uh, we are in New Orleans now. The indictment we have from New Orleans DA Jim Garrison's office on March 22nd, 1967, quote, the only prosecution ever arising out of Kennedy's murder, end quote, asserts that three men that we've met before on this show, Clay Shaw, David W. Ferry, and of course, Lee Harvey Oswald, conspired to murder John F. Kennedy. In the past, we've touched briefly on these people and the wild accusations that have been leveled against all three of them. But today we're going to look a little closer in order to find out why. Why did Jim Garrison pursue this? How did he let it get so far? And what really happened here that made this the most famous JFK theory of all time? Almost certainly. Uh, Well, the first thing you have to know was that when this whole business went down, centered as it was around this guy, Clay Shaw, this was an extremely big deal in New Orleans. Uh, Both Garrison and Shaw were listed in the March 1967 issue of the New Orleans Town and Country magazine as part of the 35 most important men in New Orleans. Uh, And when the charges of conspiracy to murder the president were brought, it wasn't just scandalous. It was surreal and unbelievable. Like if AOC suddenly came out saying that Gordon Ramsay was a North Korean spy, except if also they looked and dressed kind of similar to each other and lived in the same town. Uh, Jim Garrison was a physically huge, gentle giant type guy. I think actually some people referred to him as the Jolly Green Giant. Uh, He was a reconnaissance pilot in World War II who flew 35 missions in France and Germany, came back, got into government, did four months in the FBI before running and winning as New Orleans district attorney in 1962. He had like one killer debate. And then on the day before the election, he spent all his advertising budget on like one day of wall to wall commercials. Um, which is a crazy strategy, but it totally worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, what we know about human humanity now, we have a very short attention span. So just like the last thing you remember. Yeah. Basically his whole platform was about reform and anti-corruption. And right away after being elected, he launched into a bunch of like wild press friendly busts. Like you see in like Batman when the DA comes in, uh, he raided a bunch of strip clubs and gay bars like you do when you got to want to when you got to want to get a bunch of old white people excited, uh, even though he'd usually release everyone the next day just to get that action happening. And he went sure. hard on uh, strict bail bond laws, too. And uh, everyone in New Orleans was really behind him. Like most of the most of the older, richer voters were behind him in October of 1966 as this sort of new sheriff in town, tough on crime, young buck guy. Uh, he had this, that kind of image going for him when he first started investigating his JFK assassination case against Shaw. Uh, and here's a very quick quote uh, for him, uh, about him for Jesse to read uh, right here. Really quick quote. Nyolens fell in love with him. He looked like Perry Mason and sounded like Elliot Ness. Shaw, who was also super tall like Garrison, uh, just like 6'6 six, six guy. Like anybody would say, first thing about Clay Shaw, he's tall. 
uh, was a major in World War II who was awarded medals for heroism and then came back to be one of the founders of the New Orleans International Trademark. He headed up the building of the actual trademark building in New Orleans. Uh, and then with all the money he was making as the managing director, he restored 16 historical homes in the city's French Quarter well enough that he actually got magazine coverage for it in multiple magazines. And politically, he was known to have loved the Kennedys. He voted for Kennedy. He even referred to himself as a liberal. And culturally, he like loved languages, travel, fine dining. He knew his way around the wine list. Uh, he was always finding time to read and see and listen to and watch, visit the classics, the iconic world locations. Uh, he ran in circles with people like Winston Churchill and Tennessee Williams. Uh, and he even wrote a few plays of his own, which were published and performed, and you can still find available online today, like for sale even, uh, like still in print, even some of them. And he, along with pretty much everyone in New Orleans, who at this point had no reason not to believe Garrison, uh, was absolutely gobsmacked when he was accused of participating in this conspiracy. Uh, and from the beginning, he didn't so much take the charges seriously as treat them like the bizarre ravings of an unwell obsessive who had just sort of like randomly decided to try and destroy his life. <laughs> and honestly, for the life of him, he had Sounds no like idea. My, me. That's what I've been yeah. trying to do with this podcast for five years. Just, right. Just, That's what I heard about you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to destroy someone's life. Uh, and my for the life. life of him, he had no idea what he was doing on the list of people like Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry. Because to him, as like this socialite, this like really just man about town, People like Oswald and Ferry were just simply not the type of normal, good, upstanding people that he would, like, associate with, right? So Ferry, for example, was this, like, cartoonishly loud, manic-depressive eccentric and quote-unquote tortured genius who wore a bright red homemade wig all the time and huge, thick, fake eyebrows, if you can go look up a picture of him, because he suffered from alopecia. So he just, like, made his own fake hair to wear and made him look super, like, didn't, like, pass as normal hair by any means. Uh, and at one time or another, he had held all kinds of wild jobs in his life, from commercial airline pilot to high school science teacher to private eye to pianist, accomplished pianist, to gas station owner to hypnotist to unlicensed clergyman, which was one of his dreams was to be a clergyman. Unlicensed clergyman. He, like, went into the school and then he couldn't be in it anymore. And so he just, like, kind of decided he was a clergyman and then uh he was an uncredentialed psychologist and an unemployed cancer researcher all things that he actually did uh you he know, was i i thought about being a priest for a little while in my life i can Back see when that. i was like uh, like 13 14 i can see your little your little loss not because i was religious yeah. but it was like i don't have to pay i could like live for, for basically and do whatever i want and get like a house and i just gotta pretend i care about god god will have to listen to me if i'm a priest Dude, yeah. then no, i'll get that, everything i want that should have been my thought. I would have I would have went through with it if that was my thought process. I'd be out there praying. I'd just become preacher. Yeah. When I was like 26 and I was like really hustling on the YouTube and shit. I mean, I still kind of am now, but like back in the day when I was like dumb and young, I was like, yeah, when you have you, same thing, when you have like infinite energy to just like do this. I legit was so stressed out and like anxious about my life and my job that I was like fantasizing about living in jail because I thought that would be cool. You know, I, I, to I, I, I told I did have those thoughts before, too, when things yeah. were like really bad what? growing up. I was like. At least in jail, I like get fed and I don't have to think about anything. What? It's, it's the same. It's the same idea as as wishing to be a priest in my mind. It's like you it's yeah, romantic. Yes. It's it's romantic to have like such a regimented disciplined schedule. And All I had just, to do is no. work one or two days, like go to, you know, 
like do mass for to a couple, clear, couple days. I don't and then actually want to live in jail. I don't actually want no, to live in jail. No, me either, obviously. Yeah, but clear. like that was just younger, depressed me thoughts. What the hell was happening? I'm a big proponent of prison reform. That's, that's Those are stories for Tales from the Crypt, man. I'm just saying, I get it. I get wanting to be a priest. I get having a stressed yeah. out life and wanting I'm to. I'm glad. Live. Honestly, I thought I was going to get like two Jesse reactions, but. Yeah. I appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, he was also notoriously anti-communist and outspoken about how he blamed Kennedy for the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. And around New Orleans, he made him uh, like a name for himself in the anti-Castro scene, which, according to Garrison, was why he was going to be the getaway pilot in the assassination uh, on November 22nd, despite allegedly, according to Garrison, being fired from Eastern Airlines for having sex with a 15-year-old boy, or at least trying to. Oof. Yeah. And actually... Now is a great time to mention that behind closed doors, both Clay Shaw and David Ferry happened to be gay. Uh, in the world of reality and world history, gayness was absolutely not the vibe in this location and in this time period. Especially if you're old, especially if you're white, especially if you're Christian and rich. Most people uh, who have any sway over their local DA, and regardless of what you believe about the assassination of the president, without question, Jim Garrison for sure weaponized the fact that these two guys were gay repeatedly either whether he did it wittingly or unwittingly in his extreme zeal to convict people for killing the president often substituting liking boys for having any sort of criminal intent as a method of trying to convince the jury not to trust them i gotta pause that right a second that's that's think about that right you just you you couple the idea of pedophilia with being gay and what are we seeing today over the past year or two the same exact tactic is happening right now people who are transsexual cross-dressers uh or just being a uh, drag queens all being linked with like pedophilia which is the most infuriating thing in the world the thing that's the yeah the thing that's crazy to me is that as somebody who's not a total pussy and like not afraid to like associate with somebody who's like slightly different from me in some ways you know what i mean just like meeting and speaking to people of different genders different sexual orientations different you know whatever like it's a lot it's very easy if you don't have that experience to just be like and the evil gays you know uh literally at one point garrison referred to the assassination by these three guys as a quote homosexual thrill killing can you believe that jesus christ this is like this is the guy from the movie JFK we're talking about. His, it's so obvious what his goal is, and it isn't figuring out JFK. It's latching that onto his agenda of yeah. the anti-gay, like, zealousness of it all. Well, yeah, well, we'll get, we'll get, I, I don't, I don't actually think he was that anti-gay. Like, in reality, he's actually on record a lot of times as, like, speaking up on behalf of gay people. Uh, but I think this, how how long after this has that is that happened before and after. But I think that the reason that what? it's the reason that it's frustrating is because it's about that Moby Dick energy. It's about that like mm-hmm. obsession obsession with an outcome rather than with the truth. And yes, yes. and kind of like it's sad to see what things you will resort to in those times right even somebody like garrison who amongst politicians and especially da's was you know openly kind of against gays in a way where he was using that as a weapon but like actually probably didn't have that much hatred for them in his real private life uh which is just even almost worse uh oswald on the other hand according to yeah to that though like that 
I mean, that holds true even now. Like, it's a lot of people who are raised to see this as like a sin or something to like evil. And then a lot of the time, you know, those who are having those thoughts and those feelings, instead of addressing it in a healthy way, all they know is evil sin. And so they turn it into self-hate, which then becomes outward hate. And especially those like how many times do we find out politicians even now are like being discovered for all these things? He's using this. Yeah, he's using this for political gain. He's using this unfortunate tendency uh, for his own political gain. Uh, And Oswald in Garrison's version of events was only maybe gay or slightly by by osmosis or something. Uh, but that didn't matter as much because he was really more of an unwitting dope in the whole situation. Uh, his job was just to convince everyone he was pro-Castro, even though he was really an extreme right-wing CIA operative, uh, before eventually Can getting become- tricked by mm-hmm. the evil gays, Shaw and Ferry, into taking the heat <laughs> from multiple squads of precision shooters positioned around the motorcade in a triangular kill box configuration by the same shadowy rogue CIA elements that were pulling Shaw and Ferry's little unsavory gay strings from behind Man, the scenes. How do you become bi by osmosis? Because, like, I want to put that, that in my just, Twitter Because type. by needing to be in some certain locations sure. and some certain times to make some legal arguments make so sense. So lying is what it was. Yeah, Oswald, it's so crazy because as much as Oswald is in the movie a lot, Oswald is, like, just kind of, like, Proof that people are involved in killing Kennedy in practice in the trial. And Garrison is not very accusatory. He even almost makes Oswald a hero at points in his testimony and kind of makes him this like sort of anti-hero character who like wasn't really into killing the president, but was like kind of getting manipulated and kind of realized he was taking the fall in real time and kind of giving him this sort of like empathetic angle that I think is kind of weird, but he's really not central at all to anything that Garrison says, and actually not central at all to this theory, because according to Garrison, Oswald didn't even pull the goddamn trigger. He was nowhere near the guns. He didn't do any shooting at all. He was just there to seem like he would, because he's like a weird guy. You know what I mean? Uh, And so I actually don't talk about Oswald that much. Yeah, I have such a I have such a freaking I have problem with that thought process, though. I agree with you, but I I, I, like because of that, he's not even really in this theory that much, even though he's the guy who, you know, went down for this. And that's why I know we we know this, but like the idea to to put that put it out there, like pretending he didn't shoot him or or wasn't involved in any (laughs) way ignores everything that happened after the shot went off, including him. Being so nervous, he shot a cop yeah. in the head yeah. like, to make sure they were dead. And that is like <laughs> undoubted. But that's what you like, do when you're really nervous, even if you didn't actually pull yeah, any we trigger. Found, you know we I mean? found the, the bullet. Like there's, there's, there's forensic evidence that Shots shows that he did it. Shots were fired. Like that yeah. is, yes. I mean, I threw some doubt on that last time we talked about this. But again, this is not my theory and neither was that one. I'll dig yeah. this up if, we, if I can remember to do so. But we got, I got an amazing back at that, that time, an amazing email to some from somebody who was like an accredited like firearms guy. He sh- like he showed me like his licenses and stuff. And he was just talking about how it absolutely he absolutely could have fired it because of the quality of ammo and the quality of his gun made it not nearly as reliable as it needed to be. So him firing and still like hitting somebody, but not as like. Right. So it's all possible. I, I can dig up the ballistic stuff for the next time. It's in the email. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember when that happened. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, Basically, the damage all this did to the official story and people, the American public understanding it was absolutely catastrophic. Uh, And the fact that a movie was made about this later makes it even worse. Americans are really good at being entertained for news. 100%. 
Garrison went on TV multiple times throughout his time on the case, giving the first conspiracy theorists the original script for basically everything we're still out here obsessing over today, announcing things like, quote, President Kennedy was killed by elements of the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States government. He did that on TV. He repeatedly asserted that Ferry and Oswald were being employed by the CIA and on WKBW in Buffalo, New York. On July 19th, 1967, he was quoted as saying, quote, the CIA knows the names of every man involved in the assassination, including the names of the individuals who pulled the triggers from the grassy knoll. Uh, and just to sort of underline the point that Garrison not, isn't just culturally, but also like literally responsible for tons of this discourse. Bugliosi uh, mentions that once the word is out in the conspiracy circles, the, like the small conspiracy theorist circles that there were at that time, you know, uh, in the early 60s, um, once the word got out that an honest-to-goodness DA was, like, working on the same kind of stuff that they were getting laughed at for, but it was being taken seriously instead of, like, being made a laughingstock, a literal mm -hmm. army of JFK conspiracy theorists like Mark Lane, who we'll mention again later, Penn Jones, Richard Popkin, Tom Caton, Vincent Salandria, Edward Epstein, William Turner, Jones Harris, Harold Weisberg, Dar David Lifton, Mary Farrell, May Brussel, Richard Sprague, Raymond Marcus, Alan Chapman, and the comedian Mort Saul, who himself went on Johnny Carson and told him Garrison was the, quote, most important man in America. All of those people that I just said all actually came down to New Orleans to his office and volunteered their time to help get this thing, as they saw it, blown wide open. So it was literally like conspiracy school for everybody together, all in one place to like share all their ideas and be taken seriously. There, within that, there was a smaller group of hardcore anti-Warren Report lifers like Mort Saul, the comedian, who despite a successful career palling around with people like Sinatra and Nixon, and even appearing on the cover of Time magazine with Nixon and Kennedy one time himself. Uh, Mort Saul worked on and off for Garrison for four years without pay uh, just to get this done. And people like him uh, were nicknamed the Dealey Plaza Irregulars around the office. And though in one way that could come across as like the people banding together no matter what to like fight back against the grand overreach by rogue elements within the government. Uh, in another way, it was kind of like the beginning of the end for anybody ever taking this seriously. Uh, and in fact, uh, here's a quote from the book for Mathis to read now. As with Saul, Garrison actually gave several of them, who had come to be known as the Dealey Plaza Irregulars, DA investigator credentials. But other than Bill Turner, which is insane to... Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. To, like, think about that for yeah. a second. They gave them DA investigator credentials. Yeah. But other than Bill Turner, a former FBI agent and perhaps the only Dealey Plaza irregular whom Garrison called to help out, not one of them had a one day of experience investigating a crime. Whoa, what? <laughs> I feel like it'd be the same people who go to like the JFK yeah, Jr. resurrection exactly events. exactly what it is, yeah. <laughs> well, some of them are like other serious, like a lot of those people that I said, if you know this scene, are people, yeah, with writing on this, yeah. 100%. And yeah, because I mean, this also, keep in mind, he used, like you said, he said on TV, in like yeah, on a show that not millions that, and millions yeah. of people watched there wasn't any internet to cross check any of this information thomas bethel a member of garrison's regular staff said at the time that the trouble with these conspiracy theorists is quote uh quote is that the only way they can ma make a strong impression on garrison is by coming up with flamboyant nonsense 
They therefore represent a serious threat to the sanity of the investigation. Right. So they're now trying to like act out, right? To like get more excitement on their theory, even though it's not true. It's just about being the golden boy for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. But eventually, even the conspiracy peeps started to bail on Garrison for the most part, because in the end, they were turned off by how little concern Garrison had in the face of mounting evidence that he may have been prosecuting an innocent man this whole time. Uh, and actually, here's a quote for Jesse to read that shows that really it might even be worse than that. The belief among many in the conspiracy community is that Garrison's fiasco and Yalins actually <laughs> set their movement back several years. Up until the House Select Committee on Assassination reinvestigated the assassination in the late 1970s, conspiracy theorists, trying to peddle their theories more often than not, had Garrison's misadventure thrown in their face. If Garrison turned up nothing, the thinking went, why would we believe your theory has any more merit? This was particularly true since Garrison had already incorporated so many of their theories into his position. So yeah, this is another problem that is like also common amongst UFO people is just that oh yeah, these other people get really popular and use they like use other people's research as building blocks and build up this whole theory that's like totally crazy and, and you know selfish and just for financial gain. And then not only does it discredit themselves, but it 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 spreads that discredit onto the other people who are doing honest work, you know, trying to figure the shit out. Anytime now in the UFO, if anyone gets any funding at all, Avi Loeb, I read a bunch of like comments about like any funding whatsoever, they're immediately in it for themselves. They're just a shill. They're using it to do all this stuff. And it's insane because like Avi Loeb, for example, raised 1.2 million to do that two and a half week expedition on the ocean. People think that's an insane amount of money. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's to get that done, to, to pay the crew, to have the equipment, to test the stuff like doesn't discredit them at all, but that's where we're at. And yeah, it makes it really easy to discredit like people who do actual work in any conspiracy third circle, quote unquote, by just having people like this come in and do this shit. Yeah, exactly. And that is exactly the reason why the guy who wrote this book, Bugliosi, is mad at Oliver Stone and Jim Garrison. And it's also the exact same reason why Professor Wilkes, the guy who wrote the review of the book, is mad at the guy who wrote the book. It's just all it's all that same exact feeling. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the beat by beat process of the trial because it's a wild guy just drawing wild conclusions based on a mixture of wild gut feelings and wild witnesses. Um, and also because even though both give the same gist in a lot of ways, the version of facts presented in the real trial and in the trial from the movie and the other things that the movie shows mostly do not resemble each other. Uh, like, for example, Garrison was almost never actually present for the proceedings of the real trial. Whereas in the movie, he's like fucking Phoenix Wright doing all these monologues all the time, trying to inspire America to be better. Objection. I wish that's what court was like. Yeah. Uh, but just to give you an idea of what kind of unhinged behavior we're dealing with in here, uh, let's have Mathis read us the tale of one Edgar Eugene Bradley, which, you know, three names. You got to watch out. On December 10th, 1967, no one succeeded in stopping Garrison from filing a criminal complaint against on Edgar Eugene Bradley, alleging Bradley did, quote, willfully and unlawfully conspire with others to murder John F. Kennedy. Garrison's evidence against Bradley, a young man from Van, Van Nui, is that how you say that? Van, Van Nuys. Van Nuys, California, lived in the home of a woman who was involved in a lawsuit with Bradley, and when she told him that Bradley looked like one of the three tramps arrested in the railroad yards, 
he wrote a letter to Garrison to this effect, adding for good measure that Bradley had offered him $10,000 to kill Kennedy when the letter uh, when the latter was a U.S. senator, but he had turned Bradley down. Several years later, it was determined that the man, a member of the Minutemen, was 14 years old at the time that Bradley made uh, that Bradley allegedly made him the offer. When Dallas Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig, whose credibility or severe lack thereof was discussed earlier in this book, told Garrison that he saw Bradley in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963 posing as a Secret Service agent, and Garrison star witness Perry Russo said Ferry knew Bradley, that's all Garrison needed to charge Bradley with Kennedy's murder. Yeah, very clear. That's a very clear description as to why he's guilty. Yeah, <laughs> what the it's fuck? Abs- it's absolutely insane that a 14-year-old, like, he's like, yeah, he told me this when I was 14. Uh, it's, like, absolutely insane. Uh, by the way, we have not talked about Perry Russo just yet, but remember him for later when we go through things piece by piece. Uh, and in case you don't know, the Minutemen was like this sort of like proto-proud boy, anti-communist, anti-Castro, pro-American, nativist, militant, cell-based, counter-revolutionary group that like stockpiled weapons and got ready for war. In reality, like 30 nerds who wish they were a hero of a story that's not happening. Yeah, the dude who made it got taken downtown for planning to rob a bank and then he skipped town to New Mexico and got arrested. And there's a lot more to that, but you get the idea. Go read about it somewhere else. That's Honestly, not the point like you said, man, the JFK conspiracy is like home to so many other wild things. Yeah. There's just no time. It would be a whole fucking year of content well, just on that. The problem with conspiracy, and we talk about this all the time, is that mm-hmm. in believing one, it leads to believing another and another. And well, if that's possible, then this must be possible. Or in order for X to be possible, Y has to be possible. And it's just you keep adding on to it, which is how you get to like. You know, John F. Kennedy Jr. coming back to be the vice president kind of thing. Oh, you're absolutely just why when you ask people, they they do your own research, because if they say it out loud, it sounds fucking insane. You go to you go to you go to prove it and you get desperate and then you reach for like somebody who else who hasn't done a good job. And then their whole history of doing a bad job becomes your history of doing a bad job. Another non-political example of this is the literal missing 411 stuff that we covered about last year at this time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. That is exactly what's going on with that. It's just like, what the fuck are we even reading now? You know what I mean? Yeah. At this point, when you do a little research, you're like, wait, what is this man is just lying? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or like he doesn't even he never saw the real data or something. Yeah, he never did the actual research or never. Yeah. yeah, Continue. Yeah, exactly. Okay. yeah. Bradley, though who worked as a business rep for a right-wing radio evangelist in North Hollywood, California, said, quote, I shot who? When he found out <laughs> Garrison had filed the complaint. Uh, and in 1968, because Garrison never presented any, any evidence at all, even after, given, after, even after being given the explicit chance to present witnesses, uh, Governor Reagan denied Garrison's extradition request for Bradley. Uh, and it's basically... Just a bunch of stuff like this over and over until he got so harrowed and so desperate and so erratic and his goodwill with the people of New Orleans had so eroded that everyone good who trusted him just like kind of slowly jumped ship, right? As an example of that. At one point during the investigation, a thing that was kind of sus was uh, that happened uh, and which we'll dive into a little more detail later is that at a very unopportune time at a key point in the investigation, David Ferry was actually found dead at home under slightly strange circumstances, uh, kind of hobbling the entire case. We've talked about this uh, briefly also uh, at other times, but this did happen for real. 
And at first, what were the conditions there? He found you know. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get into it in a minute. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Uh, but uh, at first, uh, lots of people. He had an aneurysm. Uh, lots of people okay. on the case, and there were some notes. Uh, lots of people on the case <laughs> okay. were actually relieved when this happened because they thought surely they would finally be free of this insane goose chase, and it even kind of gave him this out where he didn't really have to admit that he was wrong the whole time because he'd kind of point to the death of David Ferry and be like, see. They didn't want us to get close, so they killed us. They killed our witness, so now we'll never know. You know what I mean? Like, he could have went down that road. But instead, what he did was he turned around and, quote, almost immediately charged Shaw with the murder. Like, he, like, doubled down like a zealot, right? Uh, we, we've talked about that a million times in both conspiracy theorists as well. If, they, if doubling down is easier and safer for your brain. Exactly. And another question is, like, is he trying to save face or does he actually believe all this shit? Right. Mm. That that becomes the major question with Garrison. And some people left in disbelief because they saw him react like a crazy person when they found out that when he found out that Ferry was dead, saying stuff like, quote, this is just the beginning and shit like that. I mean, even if he didn't necessarily begin believe it in the beginning, there's it's a possibility that he lied so much that he began to believe it and see things. Yeah, it's very people do that all the time. Cult leaders are a great example of that. Oh, dude, that's basically what this is, kind of, if you Mm -hmm. think about it. Yeah, um, absolutely. But as Jesse's about to read for you now, for others, they actually saw something even worse than that happening. So uh, here you go. Warren Commission critic Harold Weisberg, Weisberg? Yeah, whatever. Um, was one of Garrison's strongest earliest supporters, and he went to Nyalens to help <laughs> Garrison on his case. Garrison reciprocated by writing the foreword to Weisberg's 1967 book Oswald in Nyalens. But months before the trial, he disavowed Garrison. Although he was not inclined to elaborate, Weisberg told me he was a witness in Yawlins to Garrison making up a piece of evidence against Shaw. And when he saw this, he said, I knew I had to sever my association with Garrison. Weisberg said that Garrison, the man, quote, was one of the greatest tragedies in investigation in the investigation of Kennedy's assassination. He was highly talented, intelligent, articulate. But somewhere down the road, he lost contact with reality. And that is capitals. Lost contact with reality. (laughs) I just don't understand what he was up to. There was just no evidence of Shaw's guilt. Yeah. So what was Garrison up to? in, In a quote, which I kind of see as Bugliosi's final word on the question of whether he was legit or whether he was faking it for attention is that in actuality, it was more like a very depressing combination of both. Um, And here is that quote now for Mathis to read. And then we'll move on to the uh, movie listical part of today's presentation. Uh, So here's a little quote for you, Mathis. My view, for whatever it's worth, seeing that I did not know Garrison and being aware that it conflicts with the views of some people who did know him, is that Garrison eventually came to realize that his suspicions about Shaw were unfounded. Yet he persisted in prosecuting an innocent man. My sense is that Edward Wegman, one of Shaw's attorneys, summed up the entire case and Garrison's motive for bringing it as well as anyone I've heard. Quote, an innocent man has been the victim of a ruthless, unethical and fraudulent public prosecutor who, with premeditation and full knowledge of the falsity of the charges brought against Shaw, used him for the sole purpose of obtaining a judicial forum for his attack upon the credibility of the Warren Commission. In other words, and pardon the play of words, 
Clay Shaw was just a patsy. Was this about what you guys expected in terms of Oliver Stone taking some creative license? No, actually, surprisingly not. Like, do you do you, do you think his portrayal of events as as they are in the movie has crossed any sort of line at this point? Like, do you think that his uh, untru- do you think he's dangerously elevated untruths to truths in the zeitgeist? Is is the blood on Oliver Stone's hands? I mean, not see. Look, I know where we're about to get, so I understand where we're going with this. But even trickling in little lies or falsities or nudging the truth in different ways is basically the hook or the bait to pull you deep once we're about to jump off what I'm assuming is the deep end. We're just going to learn about exactly how false a lot of the things are in this movie. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. But it is storytelling. And Stone, as we said last Mm -hmm. week, all of this was something that he acknowledged and said, look, yeah, you know, I'm storytelling. I mean, this is, it, it would be like if we came at it the same way that I don't know. Uh, Disney did Pocahontas, for example. You right. know what I mean? Like that wasn't the story of Pocahontas, and never will be the story of Pocahontas. But it, they also didn't. Yeah, they also didn't use images of the real Pocahontas, and then like cut, jump, cut it with actresses playing Pocahontas, and you know, said like Pocahontas was murdered by John Smith. Read the clues; they're right there in front of you. You know, <laughs> it's like. Right, but also, which one of these movies between the two uh, stood the test of time? <laughs> you know right. what I mean? <laughs> JFK, I mean, look, JFK, he presented it as like, we read between the lines, we got 12 researchers to get you the real story of what happened. You know, they're, 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 it's, a pr- it's a historical drama where they're saying things that are absolutely, well, we'll get there, we'll get there, but... Sure, sure, yeah. what I'm saying is, more people identify... No, I'm saying like more people identify in the end, more people identify the story of Pocahontas and John Smith from the animation Mm -hmm. than the JFK assassination from this film. Even though they use real actual stuff in it, and a lot of it's still made up, more people are like, oh, I believe the made up story of John Smith and Pocahontas. Oh, because it makes you feel good. One. Uh, and two, this, I don't think this, I don't think. So which is more damaging? You know what I mean? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's a whole, yeah. There's a whole fucking debate with, uh, there. Like it's an interesting thought, which is worse. Oh, I think this is like about trusting your government. But right? like this movie is also not being put out under the guise of entertainment, right? He's putting it out as though it's a documentary style. Like this is the truth. I did my it's still research, entertain- right? It's still definitely the entertainment. The movie JFK was 100% entertainment. Yeah, it's still definitely oh, entertainment, but it's not I've like. I've never seen it. So I just, uh, you know. It's not presented in a way like how, like when I watched Pocahontas, you know, as a fifth grader. Can I, can I compare this? To, look, where I was getting with this is can I compare this with the mermaid documentary that Discovery put out? It's not a, it's not a documentary. It's a legitimate no, yeah, film. No, it's a, it's a narrative film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's using real footage from things. Think about like how Metal Gear Solid sometimes like uses archival footage like while okay. characters are talking. The world is burning. Like that kind of it's stuff. Like, it's like literally a movie with a story and characters and then like somebody will monologue for like 20 minutes and they'll go to like news footage and then also have like footage of gary oldman as oswald like mixed in with the news footage and sometimes like recreating yeah see to me the way you describe it it sounds like a presentation of like a documentary style like evidence thing pocahontas i as a fifth grader knew that it wasn't accurate to history and this i until i started doing this show thought that it was just like pretty close to what is weird about the i'm gonna give you the opposite i did not know as a kid that it wasn't so flowery and like like peaceful between like John Smith and I didn't think magic was real and they she was talking to tree animals, but I did think for a while that it was a peaceful thing until like I got to the age where I could and the internet came around 
And I could start doing my own research in a way that didn't involve having to go to the library and look for books. Yeah, she was not smoking hot. She was a child. Yeah. Yes, and I also, yes, you're yes. not. You're not gross. You're not going out today and seeing people in New England camping out and like, no. like, like praying to Flit and Miko from Pocahontas in the same way that people are showing up at Dealey Plaza. You know those names off the top of your head. Bro, like don't even. You, yeah, listen, I, I used to work at Blockbuster Video for like seven years. Uh, the, uh, I did once go to like one of those old mining things yeah. where you like pan for gold. And I was like, oh. mine boys, mine. <laughs> yeah, I, did that, I did that bit. I feel like you really liked that guy, that, that villain from that. I, you know yeah. what? Yeah. I'd be the villain. I feel, like that, guy, I feel like that guy's like up your alley. I'd have been up the accent. Yes, I, do the whole thing. <laughs> I have a pug. For yeah. some reason, I can't remember his name, but uh, I remember the other guys, the, the, the fucking hummingbird's yeah, name. I can't remember his name. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, JFK makes people not trust the government and like says things about the government that aren't true, and I think that's a little bit different in a way. But you're right. They are both the same problem, which is that like in mm-hmm. order to tell an entertaining story and to get people excited, they just change stuff. And so does Oliver Stone have any more responsibility than the people that wrote? the cartoon of Pocahontas. I don't know. I don't, I, no. I don't think there's a tr- the right answer, but I was, I am interested See, too. In a way we're less talented than Oliver Stone because we don't even make an attempt in that way. We just make terrible jokes along the way while we give you a history lesson. I, here's the thing. I love JFK still. Yeah. I still love the I movies. mean, we're also currently, like if you want to do like a very current version, Oppenheimer is getting a lot of pushback suddenly for all sorts of reasons, not just the uh, people talking about like the effects of the bomb and stuff like that. But more importantly, people talking about how during the testing of it, how they displaced, you know, many people that were on that land and many people died of radiation poisoning and sickness and how like, you know, the real Oppenheimer story is a lot more detailed and intricate. It's one of those things where when you tell a movie, you got two hours to tell something Uh, and it's impossible to hit every single thing and and you want to hit it from an angle. So in this case with JFK. He's attacking the subject from one angle, and, you know, you have to admit that the question is, what when they make the choices of what characters to elevate and what mm. characters not, that's when it becomes a little problematic, but, like, that's always been Hollywood, right? Like that's, And that's exactly what we're going to, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today, yeah. That, yeah, 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 it's always been Hollywood is right. Yeah, and for the record, JFK Smacks, it's an absolutely awesome movie that you should watch. Uh, and Oppenheimer fun. here is actually really good, too, if you just, like. Yeah, look, watch it. Pocahontas was good. Yeah. It does, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Bill and Ted was good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the documentary. That. It's the best version of Lincoln yeah, we've ever had. It's a documentary. Uh, I've yeah. seen Bill and Ted 1, but not the other next Dude, one. Dude, Bill and Ted 2 is, all right. You're fine. Bill and Ted 2 is actually awesome, but it's, it is like not the same as Bill and Ted 1. This is the craziest thing. For all that bluster about CIA and rogue elements acting on their own from within the government, and someone finally having the courage to call it all out in the actual trial, which again, he barely ever attended and did not even conduct the questioning or cross-examination of Shaw in. No one on Garrison's side, or any side, mentioned the CIA one single fucking time in court for any reason. Even after going on TV and saying all that stuff, even after all these people going to bat for him on television and on radio and stuff, in the actual trial, he did not have the nuts to say the CIA did anything one fucking time so let that sink in because that's the thing about this is it's like there's the jfk assassination which really happened then there's this crazy guy in the 60s late 60s early 70s who like fucked up everybody's perception of it for real in 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 not a fictional way in the actual courts of law and then instead of going with 
anything that's substantiated. Oliver Stone went with the crazy guy and picked his story to make into a movie, which is kind of interesting. And I don't mean to disparage Jim Carrison by calling him crazy. I don't think he's crazy in that sense. I agree with Bugliosi in that he dug himself far deep into a hole. He fantasized about going up on stage in court and talking about how he didn't believe in the Warren Commission, which I think a lot of people were feeling. Dude, you know that dude was having like furious jerk-off sessions that night with him thinking about being on that stand. Do we know like, that? Yeah, fucking, you're gonna bring the truth down. <laughs> be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, fuck, fuck up, my butt, I swear to God. Yeah, no, you're right. I think so. <laughs> Mathis always thinks that's happening to everyone at all times. Mathis? Do he thinks everybody, every, he, He's like, he's like, uh, you know, like, Babies don't have object permanence where, like, you put something behind a blanket and they don't know it exists. If you put something behind a blanket, Mathis automatically thinks it's masturbating. That's called object. It's called object horniness. The truest shit I've ever heard. It's called object horniness. I love that. That's so funny. Anyway, the rest of the episode is going to be us looking over, uh, looking a little more closely at some of these events that may have been somewhat elevated by Oliver Stone's movie version of history through a few separate lenses, and then just like we did earlier with the Kennedy, Lincoln, Booth, Oswald stuff, which was thematically perfectly chosen to be the beginning of this episode, if I do say so myself, we'll look more closely at the real facts and see if it changes our mind at all, okay? This is like the uh, grand finale lightning round for JFK Part 2, so buckle up, suckers, because we're about to get, we're about to get meaty, baby. How's that Mm. sound? You want to get meaty? What kind of meat? Don't beef. Do, don't not like this. Beef pork. Ooh. I don't know. First, uh, let's take a closer pork. look. I, I separated this into a couple categories. First, we're going to take a closer look at some instances in the movie where Stone was extremely charitable about the facts of Garrison's case and kind of sort of hinting that he might be some sort of misunderstood hero. That's the thing we're going to be talking about first is Garrison's story. That's the name of this section. Uh, first of all. Going back to Garrison weaponizing Clayshaw's gayness for a second, uh, a big part of the overarching mystery he was trying to spin around Clayshaw's personal business was that in order to keep himself safely in the closet while engaging in a lot of these hot, nasty, homosexual, thrill-killing activities that he was talking about, uh, he was regularly, instead of using his real name, using the alias Clay or Clem Bertrand uh, instead of Clayshaw. And a big part of this depended on the word of a smooth-talking attorney called Dean Andrews, uh, who is played by John Candy in the movie, uh, who said that he had been contacted on various occasions by Clay Shaw under the name Bertrand in relation to some business involving helping young gay Mexican men to get parole and bonds, as well as possibly contacting him about representing Lee Harvey Oswald at trial while he was uh, in the hospital for, like, pneumonia or something like that. Uh, He happened to be in the hospital when he Mm. got the call. Um, Mm. In the movie, there's an exchange between Kevin Costner and John Candy, uh, which is allegedly pulled directly from a real-life conversation. So we'll have Jesse B. Garrison, and we'll have Mathis B. Andrews, and we'll just give you a nice little snippet of the scene they did now. It'll be just like you're watching the movie. Here it is. It's very short. It's just two lines. It's easy. If you lie to the granded jury, as you've been lying to me, I'm going to charge you with perjury. If I answer that question, if I give you that name you keep trying to get, then it's goodbye, Dean Andrews. It's bon voyage, Dino. I mean like permanent. I mean like a bullet in my head. Yeah, exactly. It's so funny watching John Candy be like, I mean like permanent. Um, Oh, (laughs) permanent. Oh, 
I meant like permanent. Yeah, oh, I could permanent. have done that. All right. It really, well. it really, it really is like that. You like pretty much nailed it. Uh, however, that's so that's that's from the movie. However, in reality, according to Bugliosi, Andrews was known to exaggerate and make up wacky lies, and his story kept changing based on how he was feeling on the day and how conscious he was of getting in trouble for what he was saying. Uh, and according to the, yeah, and according to the chief archivist for the National Archives of the Kennedy assassination, there's not a single record of that conversation that we just said happening anywhere, almost like it was made up out of thin air. Uh, and eventually, the kind of thing that Dean Andrews started saying. Uh, once stuff started getting too real for him, started to match that idea too. He started saying that the call he got from Bertrand uh, or slash Shaw about representing Oswald in court, uh, which he happened to be in the hospital for, uh, for unrelated reasons, like I said, happened while he was under sedation and when he was on opiates. And that realized, and later he realized it was actually just a call from his friend, Gene Davis, who needed him to notarize the sale of a car and not represent Lee Harvey Oswald in court. And that to protect Gene's privacy, he told everyone that Gene's name was Clay Bertrand for some reason, which was just a name that he made up. What? Yeah. All right. Well, listen, on opiates, maybe he pierced the veil of our reality and peered into a reality where he was being asked to be the lawyer for Lee Harvey Oswald. And when he came down from the opiates, the flap closed and he was back in his reality. That's probably what happened. The flap closed. Yeah. Yeah, The flap flap certainly closed. Yeah. Uh, And in fact... Here's a quote from him for Jesse to read from June 28th, 1967, which he actually gave while testifying in front of the grand jury that they're talking about in this conversation, uh, which kind of just locks this one up. This is the guy who said that they would kill him if he had to tell the truth in the movie. I've never seen this man, Shaw. Never talk to him. If this case is based on the fact that Clay Shaw is Clay Bertrand, it's a joke. Clay Shaw is not a Clay Bertrand. Yeah, so bang. But I bet you there's people out there be like, well, he had to lie because otherwise he was going to get shot in the head. Sure. Literally the opposite <laughs> thing from what happened in the movie actually happened. Uh, pretty <laughs> cut and dry. Probably should not have included this man in this movie in this context. Uh, and in fact, the same thing goes in a lot of ways for David Ferry, who's played by Joe Pesci in the movie. Excellently, by the way. He's so good as David Ferry. Especially- He's a Peacock streaming show with uh, comedian Pete Davidson. Joe Pesci is? Mm-hmm. I'd, he I'd came watch, out of retirement for it. I would watch Joe Pesci in literally anything. Yeah, no, it's like a whole show with them on Peacock streaming. Okay. Yeah, um, and yeah, like I said, the same thing goes for David Ferry, especially just because the claims being made about him in the movie really are that much crazier than the, sh- the claims being made about Dean Andrews. Uh, casting him as like an angry, erratic, overly obsessed, Kennedy-hating domestic terrorist and revolutionary who worked indirectly for the CIA through his contract, the, quote, fiercely right-wing former FBI agent Guy Bannister, uh, who in the movie is played by Ed Asner. Amazingly, what? Huh. Yeah. I love that. Mario? Yeah. No, uh, no, no, no. He's not. But he kind of looks he's like a, Mario. He's a. He's a. He's <laughs> Roger Rabbit. Roger yes. Rabbit detective. He kind of looks like Mario. That's, yeah, that's Mario. Also, though, isn't it? No. Yeah. I don't know. You Damn, get, bro. That's the '80s, man. That's that's a long time ago. Uh, in <laughs> the movie, there is tons of footage of Bannister and Ferry and Oswald working together on very specific high-level operations in New Orleans involving weapons trafficking and proliferation of manipulative political propaganda, as well as lavishly delicious, eyes-wide-shut parties attended by Ferry and Shaw, where they wear face paint and elaborate costumes. Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins, by the way. Fuck, and he's also Roger Rabbit guy. I was wrong on both, both times. All right, anyway. 
Uh, but there's literally even a full scene in the movie where they have Fairy and Garrison in a hotel room together, where Fairy is like confessing to everything. He's expressing remorse for getting involved. He's saying Jack Ruby worked for the mob. He's saying that not even any of the she's like, don't the shooters don't even know who did it. Don't you get it? It's like one of the most famous <laughs> scenes in the movie, right? Uh, in reality, the only communication that anybody had with Ferry while he was staying in this hotel room, which he was only staying in because Garrison had basically led a media circus to his door. The only com- com- uh, communication that was done between the DA's office and Ferry during that time was with uh, DA investigator Louis Ivon, who just came by on one of the nights to let Ferry know that if he needed anything, he just had to ask. So in real life, he said, hey, man, if you need anything, just let me know. We got you covered. And in the movie, he said, I did it. I'm sorry for doing it. You don't know how high up this goes. The shooters don't even know who did it. I regret it. Jack Ruby worked for the mob. Like, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, also, a big deal in, is made in the movie about the address for Guy Bannister's office in New Orleans being just around the corner from an address on leaflets Oswald had been seen distributing in the area. And sort of like to the point that it really made them two entrances into like one building, but around the corner from each other, from two different sides, where you just go upstairs and you're in Bannister's office, but it's actually just like one place. But this, unfortunately, simply just is not true, right? Like in terms of Oswald, like, yes, some of his pamphlets did have this address of this building on it. But he was never really there that often, and he some of his pamphlets didn't have that address and had other addresses on them. And on Frontline in 1993, they discovered that there was no way to get from one address to the other without exiting the building, going around and outside, exiting the second floor to the sidewalk, walking around the corner and going in the office. So, like, hmm. the idea of they literally go to this place in the movie and they point at it and they're like, look, it's connected. They just go to each other. <laughs> and in real life, they're not. It's just crazy. Uh, none of the three, Shaw, Ferry, or Oswald, ever acted like they knew or even recognized each other. Uh, there's no reliable testimony or evidence anywhere placing them together. No one ever thought to ask Oswald about Ferry and Shaw when they had him in custody because there was no concept that they were ever linked to each other from any witness or friend or relative. Uh, and when asked, Clay Shaw and David Ferry both vehemently denied knowing each other, with Ferry repeatedly offering to take a polygraph or even a truth serum and denying and denying and denying it all until the day that he died, which was in 1967. Let's be fair, though. Uh, polygraph tests are fucking worthless. Right. But he was like, fucking test me. Like, fucking yeah, yeah. do it. Like, I, like, at this time, opinion were different on those things. And he was like, no, I don't know this fucking guy. Let's go, you know. Uh, and speaking of his death, Ferry was found dead in his home in 1967 on the morning of February 22nd. Uh, and by 3 p.m., an autopsy had determined Ferry had died of natural causes, or more specifically, a, quote, rupture of Barry aneurysm of Circle of Willis with massive hemorrhage, uh, a.k.a. a circle of blood vessels on the underside of the brain touching the base of his skull. So that's what happened to him. He had, a, he had like a cluster aneurysm uh, in, his he- in, in, in his head. Uh, according to the movie version... Two masked men came to him in the night and physically forced him to swallow some kind of drug which caused his death. Uh, But in reality, there were zero signs of violence anywhere on his body when they found him. And though he did have high blood pressure, uh, his blood sample tested negative for any, quote, alcohol, barbiturates, cyanide, heavy metals, or caustic agents. Not to mention that if there were intruders that night, they would have had to have completely snuck past Ferry's 24-hour surveillance detail 
which had no evidence anywhere of any masked men any anywhere arriving. So they just show it in the movie. Two guys coming to kill him didn't happen. Um, in reality, uh, Ferry had actually been looking feeble in the days looking leading up to his death, limping, and uh, he was seen barely even capable of climbing the stairs leading to his apartment. Um, also, four days before his death, he was in the FBI field office complaining that all the slander about him that he was getting from Garrison was making him physically ill and it was giving him extreme headaches. He was literally complaining to the FBI about that. Oh, man. So he had days of warning to go to like a doctor and get it caught. Yeah. And the one weird thing were the, were the two type notes that were found next to his body, which I've mentioned before, which might point to the whole thing being some kind of planned suicide. One of the notes is just kind of like poetry. The other one is kind of like some, a message to his boyfriend that's just kind of like, they could just as easily be interpreted as like the last words of somebody who believed they were about to die and yeah. not necessarily suicide notes because the notes don't say like, and that is why I'm going to kill myself or something like that. Right. I mean, like you said, he's been having symptoms for four days. If he didn't bother, now he's having a day where maybe he can't even get up and it's like something's happening. Yeah. Somebody saw him. Somebody saw him at like 4 a.m. the day before he died. He was naked under a sheet. He looked like shit. Like it was not like yeah. he was fine and then he was gone. Like definitely not. Yeah. No. Uh, and Garrison, on the other hand at the same time, was telling the press that Ferry killed himself because he couldn't take the heat, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, only led him to double down straight into Crazy Town. Uh, and speaking of Crazy Town, in the movie, Garrison finds out about this whole plot in the first place thanks to a guy we've mentioned before, Jack Martin, who in the movie is played by the iconic Jack Lemmon, right? Just a classic old author from, uh, you know, movies about Marilyn Monroe and shit. Oh, yeah, that's, by the way, that reminds me. Uh, the last thing on that list from Snopes about the Kennedy-Lincoln thing is that it's like, a month before Kennedy was killed, or a month before Lincoln was killed, he was in Monroe, Maryland. And one month before oh Kennedy was God. killed, he was in Marilyn Monroe. But actually, that's not true, because Marilyn Monroe died one year before that. So even that <laughs> is fake. <laughs> yeah. um, God. So let's go back to Jack Martin, this guy from the beginning of the Your JFK of, movie. of reasons didn't need that last one. Like, you could have taken, yeah. you got, the conspiracy theories, you can take that one off the list. That one's for, that one's for the boys. <clears throat> that one's a fun one. <laughs> that one's for the boys. Yeah, so now we got Jack Martin, who's played by Jack Lemmon. This is like the inciting incident of the movie. He's seen in the movie as this sort of like nice, well-meaning, but like tragically alcoholic sidekick to Ed Asner's Guy Bannister. He meets up with Garrison at the racetrack and tells him that it was in Guy Bannister's office that Shaw and Ferry and Oswald were always hanging out. This is like, in the movie, is like the core reason why Garrison even starts to care about this because he gets this report like right after the death of Kennedy that this guy's like Guy Bannister whipped the shit out of me um, because I said something wrong that he didn't like about the assassination and he like turned on me, right? Something like that. Um, but in reality, Martin's testimony was so unworthy that they didn't even use it in the eventual trial because Martin had a clinically diagnosed character disorder. He had spent significant time in two mental wards in two different states he had on multiple occasions falsely claimed to be an FBI agent himself and had only made up the story as a means of getting revenge against an unrelated slight against him by Bannister. And in fact, here is a quote about the guy for Mathis to read from New Orleans DA investigator Lynn Loisel, who, who was asked... Lynn Loisel? They asked her if, if, if this guy was, was one of their, like, confident, uh, confidential informers. No, no, no. Ew, that's Sacaroches. Believe you me, anything that he said, 99% of it was checked out to be false. You know, made up, lies, jealousy, everything else. Oh boy, man, we would be torn to pieces, but not like this. Yeah. So 
this dude who's like the key guy who like set this all off is actually just like completely unreliable and it's like makes perfect sense why him saying that wouldn't make everyone in the city like go look into it you know what i mean it's just mm-hmm. not what happened the way that they said it in the movie and it's not even like a dramatic retelling it's just like not the same it's not they're using things that happened and twisting them completely uh and finally uh before heading back to Dealey plaza for the first time in a while uh we have to talk for a second about a guy that i mentioned earlier called perry russo in reality yeah, yeah. perry russo was meant to be quote jim garrison's star witness at clay shaw's trial okay the idea was that Russo's testimony would be the thing that tied the whole thing up in a knot, placing Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald in Ferry's apartment sometime in September of 1963, talking about their shared desire to kill Kennedy for their wild gay reasons or whatever they're doing, right? This was his like big the gay fury overtakes them. This like was his main strategy. This was Garrison's like main golden boy in this trial. Uh, Perry was a local insurance salesman who was a friend of David Ferry's and had only come forward after he'd heard about Ferry's death to help out where he could in the investigation and be interviewed and stuff. So he just showed up and was like, I know this guy. I'll talk about it. And uh, the problem was this guy's story was pretty spotty and inconsistent. And he started to make these wild claims. He'd be like, I remember this guy who was like this roommate. And they'd be like, is it this guy? Is it Lee Harvey Oswald? And he'd be like, uh... Yeah, I think so. You know, like stuff like that. Um, and so after they talked to him for a while, they saw they only could get like small bits of things that may have been related. Um, and he didn't start speaking clearly and in depth about any sort of conspiracy until after he had been hypnotized and given sodium <clears throat> pentothal by Jim Garrison, uh, which, you know. And OK, so hold up, hold up. It wasn't just hypnotism. They also drugged him. They give him sodium pentothal truth serum. And uh, Jesus Christ! And there was no, and and so Jim Garrison couldn't bring him to trial without admitting that. So it was almost useless to him. Not to mention, almost certainly, completely made up. Um, But yeah, uh, this guy sounds like a reply guy. Remember back like reply videos on YouTube? I think he just, I think he just showed up and got like kind of manipulated into doing drugs and just like tripping Mm, out, and saying whatever. That's probably true. You know what I mean? We do remember the guy on opioids did think he was getting asked to be Lee Harvey Oswald's lawyer. So, right. So, but here's this. This to me is the craziest thing of all. Jesse, have you seen JFK? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Stone gets around this in the movie by just not having Russo in the movie. Russo doesn't exist in the world of the movie, and instead, he invents a new gay sex worker character who's in jail, oh, who's called man. Willie O'Keefe, uh, who is played hilariously and extremely memorably by Kevin Bacon in the movie, uh, but is a guy who is completely imaginary, comes invented whole cloth from nowhere, only serves to weaponize clay shaw's gayness even more in a completely made-up way which is just oliver stone just riffing at this point um and uh he gives garrison all this information so you know and that guy wasn't on sodium pentothal so it's a lot more trustworthy it's like a huge scene in the movie and it like moves the plot forward and gets you excited and you it turns out it's based on a guy who was hypnotized and drugged one of those rag magazine titles the gays kill jfk question mark like with the giant red circle homosexual thrill killing yeah (laughs) who's next on their list um but yeah that's how it was done that's the that's the case in the movie those are the people that's the people that they chose to show in the movie and uh 
to make their case around were those people. Um, pretty easy, pretty easy. Uh, but now let's talk about how many bullets Oliver Stone says were fired in Dealey Plaza, because I think that people are kind of excited to be talking a little bit more about ballistics and trajectories, I think, than the politics. I don't know why, but we're here now in a segment that I like to call the shots. I'm calling the shots. Uh, All right. Tons of people in the movie are shown near the beginning talking about the fact that they saw all kinds of shots coming from behind the fence on the grassy knoll, but none are shown saying the shots came from the book depository, even though that's exactly where most people who said they saw anything at all saw the shots. And indeed, Despite everything, that is the most likely scenario. So purposely saying the opposite is true in the movie. Um, and to exemplify this in the movie, uh, Stone actually brings out Jack Lemmon's frequent collaborator and partner, Walter Matthau, uh, also in the movie, for one scene as Senator uh, Russell B. Long from Louisiana, to say that none of their three experts could ever make the shot that Oswald did when they did the investigation. However. In reality, one of the three experts actually did just make the shot, and he did it better than Oswald did. That's actually, I remember that. I, that was, that's a memory. Like, I didn't learn that by watching the movie, but I, I think I either heard or read about it somewhere. I, wow. Yeah, I don't know why it's there's like, a yeah, scene somebody can like make that. It. Yeah, sorry. It's just in the, in the, it's like the opposite of what's true. It's not just like smoothed out. It's just, they're just fully saying the opposite. Uh, also, there's the point where Garrison's assistant says, quote, Try to hit a moving target at 88 yards through heavy foliage? No way. Uh, but why would he... 88 yards is not that far for a sniper. Well, why would he say that like... when that's exactly the shot that hits in Zapruder frame 313, uh, especially when Kennedy is in a position uh, on the yeah. street where any obstruction is gone by frame 210, you know, of the Zapruder frame. And actually, here's the film, if you guys want to see it real quick one more time, if you need a refresher. Uh, but for you listeners out there, it's not worth giving you a link because they get taken down all the time. So just Google it. But do not do that, listener, unless you're ready to see a dude get shot in the head right in front of you with no censorship, because that's exactly what this movie is. So don't do that. Unless yeah, you can I've seen it. so much worse. So I'm yeah. fine with this shit. Um, also, yeah, there he is. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. So you can see he's like wide out in the open. And if you go back there to that place in Texas and you stand there and you look at where the tree was and you do a little try you know trajectory of the shots you'll see that where he is it's not it's not uh it's not blocked by trees um which is no weird. and there's also like you can even see him getting hit by the very first bullet when everything like his arms go up and they get like locked in yeah. place that's when the the first shot hit his spine but didn't yeah. actually kill him right exactly and also though in the movie oswald is described as quote at best a medium shot or no good he was actually a qualified marine sharpshooter and though in the yes. movie they say that the HSCA, which is the House uh, Select Committee on Assassinations, the 70s one, uh, even though in the movie they say that that committee found that it takes 2.3 seconds to pull the bolt, reload, re-aim, and fire again, in reality, it only took 1.66 seconds, according to the HSCA, uh, when firing the weapon like Oswald. a whole ass extra second. Yeah, because uh, Oswald didn't use a sight. He used the open sights on the gun, like the iron sights. He mm. didn't like sight through a scope. He just used the iron sights. So it only takes 1.66 seconds. So that's within six seconds. Uh, another bold claim the movie makes about the shooting involves, quote, three teams of professional riflemen, 10 to 12 men in total, who used a man faking a seizure to slow traffic and a man holding an umbrella to signal the shot whom we've already debunked before. 
uh, and then hit the motorcade with a, quote, triangulation of fire from not just the book depository, but also the Daltex building across the way and behind the fence on the grassy knoll. Right? Uh, so that's, that's what the movie says happens. But Bugliosi yeah. counters this with a couple great points, right? First of all, if this is true, why were only three cases found in the entire Dealey Plaza if there were all these other people shooting? There's only three cases found. And how come of the 170 people, there were 190 people there, 100 people, 170 people said they heard shots, and 136 of those 170 said that they heard three shots. So the vast majority of people said they heard three shots. And if it mm-hmm. was a real, quote, turkey shoot, like Garrison says to the jury in the movie, uh, why wasn't he, like, annihilated by gunfire by professional snipers rather than three shots being fired where one shot misses the whole fucking car, right? Yeah. Doesn't make sense. Um, but just in case you thought that Bugliosi wasn't still full of his own type of venom, here's Jesse with an even more damning quote about the multiple shooters theory right here. This is real. This is hilarious. Do you know how many heard six shots, Oliver? Are you ready? Just one. And that was Jesse Price. But even if Price were sober thinking as a judge, if 136 people in Dealey Plaza that day heard three shots and only one heard six, whom is it more reasonable to believe? Everyone, except apparently you, Oliver, would say there are 136 people. How did you come up with your six shots, Oliver? What inside information did you have that no one else has? I want to jump on that point and be like, that is still happening today. Conversations with people I'm having out here about the vaccine stuff, which is still rampant out here uh, in Texas. Yeah. It's great. And um, here in, this in is the like same thought of like they use yeah. they use doctors. They point to doctors. But when asked, like, what is the first of all, who's the doctor? And are they a virologist or are they like the doctor of like for kids, a, p- a pediatrician or something else? And then on top of that, you're like, OK, so we've got 10 of these doctors maybe saying this compared to how many hundreds or maybe thousands of, of virologists over the years who have produced studies. Why are we choosing the cherry picking those and not going with where the science Because points? people look for facts that align with their own world beliefs rather than the truth, because the truth is hard, dude. It's, yeah. just, it's the same thing. You just, it's the modern day comparison is still right there in front of you. 100%. Like, don't talk about politics, bro. We're talking about JFK right now. What do you want? I just love how he's on a first name basis with Oliver Stone in his book like that. Hey, yeah, yeah, Oliver, Oliver. What do you think, Oliver? Can you tell me? What do you think? How many shots, Oliver? I love that. Uh, but speaking of misrepresenting information, probably the most famous scene in the movie is the scene at the trial, breaking down the magic bullet that goes through Kennedy, turning right in midair, and then turning left to hit Governor Cottonley in the wrist. Um, Everybody knows the scene. We watched it, I think, or we went over it at least once before already. Uh, But actually, according to the book, the movie just moves Connolly slightly out of the way to make the shot seem impossible. When really, if you place Connolly as he's seen in the Zapruder film, uh, down and to the left in front of the president, the the bullet just kind of if you line that all up, the bullet just kind of goes in a straight line. It's very clear that it's not a magic bullet and that it's just a regular yeah. bullet on a normal trajectory, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Like they just like made, they just like the key, like the linchpin in the trial scene that like they parodied in Seinfeld is just like based on like, ah, but we just, let's move over here to make it more interesting. Um, yeah, it's crazy. 
All uh, takes, man. That's literally all it takes. And maybe, maybe, I mean, benefit of the doubt, maybe. There's a lot of choices creatively he's making here that make me go, why? Yeah. But it's even benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't realize it, but something such a, like, something so small can have such a profound impact on people's opinions and reality. It's hard to prepare for that kind of thing. Exactly. Guys, it's like, I don't know, it's almost like the beginning of this episode going through John, the John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald and Lincoln and Ken, almost like... It was some sort of setup how did he do about how slightly changing facts what? can make how this it seem completely Wait, different. Like, it's they, almost. Wait, Alex, this? you structured? You structured your episodes? Alex structured this in some this? way. How did I think of this stuff? These Illuminati <laughs> guys, man. I got to support them on Patreon. I got to get it's over It's all there. that Patreon money, yeah, honestly. Patreon. Alex so smart. Pod. Every time I log into Patreon, I get one more IQ point. Oh, man. Nice. I wish I got that. I saw on Reddit there was a thread that said, what's the dumbest thing you've ever heard somebody say? And they said, oh, my, my, my son has a high IQ, you know, intellectual quality. Uh, which is <laughs> nice. Very fun. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, in the shots category, speaking of traveling bullets, let's talk quickly about commission exhibit number 399, the supposedly, quote, pristine bullet that was found on Gun- Governor Connolly's stretcher at Parkland Hospital. As if, according to many conspiracy theories, uh, theory people, it had been intentionally planted there by someone, right? They found this totally pristine bullet that doesn't look like it traveled through a body, but yet it's there on the on the on the uh, stretcher, as if somebody was like, "Here's the bullet that you're missing. Here you go. This will support your theory." Um, in real life, there's not actually any evidence or testimony that somebody planted a bullet that struck Kennedy and Connolly anywhere. Uh, but Oliver Stone just kind of goes rogue if you will, and shows it happening anyway. They just show a guy coming in, an actual figure, and placing it on the stretcher. Um, so I ask you, are you still as convinced about there being a conspiracy as you were before we started talking about this? I mean, I, I, it, it just entirely depends on what the conspiracy is. Right? You know what I mean? Right. Like, this is a conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's so many conspiracies around JFK you know, it's impossible to say that anything's debunked because it'll never be debunked because even if they literally came out and gave us footage and information and pages and pages of facts, there would still be conspiracy. You're 100% right about that. And that is, I think, the tragedy of this whole thing. Um, but now we're going to move into a segment where we look at all the people that say crazy things in the movie, like specific people that they choose to focus on for their testimony and stuff like that. In a... Uh, segment that i'm going to call extra witnesses Ooh, witnesses that are okay. extra, extra you get it it's a double yeah. entendre uh first things first what? the movie the movie practically opens with this wild scene of a woman screaming as she's thrown from a car pleading for help mm. saying that she knew oswald and ruby and screaming that quote they're gonna kill kennedy please call somebody oh fuck it's like that type of thing uh, of course, this sure. woman is supposed to be Melba Christine Marc- Marcades, who, along with 14 other aliases that she has, is sometimes known by and also credited in the movie as Rose Cheremy, which is a pretty well-known name among JFK heads. Uh, in reality, though, Cheremy was on drugs when she was found, and she wasn't thrown from a car. She was hit by a car. Uh, driven by a guy named Frank Odom. That's such a dead... I mean, that changes everything, even if she wasn't on drugs. Yeah, she was hit uh, by a car uh, driven by a guy called Frank Odom while she was hitchhiking her way back home from Florida to Texas. 
Um, and this guy actually stopped and helped her get to the authorities when it happened. Like he didn't, it wasn't like a hit and run and she wasn't oh, thrown God. bloody from a car. Like it looks in the movie. He just like took her to the police. Uh, and then an hour after she was brought into the station, she was totally naked. She was scratching herself. She was climbing the walls, like withdrawal symptoms, you know, crazy hardcore withdrawal symptoms. Um, and once they got her into a straight jacket and started driving her to the hospital for two hours in the car, uh, she said that she calmed down and she said that she was with some Italian looking guys who got drunk and got into a fight and got them all thrown out onto the road uh, where she started hitching. And uh, when asked what she was going to do in Dallas when she got there, she said that actually she was going to get some money, get her baby, and that she was going to be the one who was going to kill Kennedy and only change the story to a we and still not even a they until her HSCA deposition in 1978. And she didn't actually know Oswald or Ruby like she claimed. And not only did she not see them at Ruby's club, The Pink Door, like she said, but Ruby did not own a club called The Pink Door at all. That's not a real place. There's more lies in this movie? And speaking of nightclubs, uh, let's talk about the singer who also said Ruby introduced her to Oswald and Ferry at his actual place in Dallas, the Carousel Club. Uh, Kind of an interesting little tidbit, maybe, for someone with an open mind, you know, if you're willing to hear all comers. Uh, But the Warren Commission never found any merit to any of these types of claims. And strangely, the only woman making this claim, Beverly Oliver, wasn't seen as a credible witness either because she didn't even show up until 1970. And back then, she was working a totally separate JFK angle of actually being the babushka lady, who we've already covered in a previous episode. She claimed to be using a camera that hadn't been invented at the time of the assassination when she, when she okay, came but, forward. Okay, but what if she was a time traveler then? You know what she actually said? What if? You know what she actually fucking said? She said, I can't remember the name, but I do remember it was an experimental camera that only I had. Amazing. Incredible. Oof. Before switching back, so she, she did that babushka lady thing for a while. Then she switched the Jack Ruby angle for a while, and then ultimately switched back to the Babushka Lady angle when she wrote her autobiography, Nightmare in Dallas, in 1994, uh, where she actually said that she was a, quote, paid technical consultant on the movie and has a picture of her and Oliver Stone hugging on set. Isn't that crazy? Dude, it's, it's, it's not often you get to test your, like, uh, an A-B kind of test on your story in the public before you write your book right. on which one ended up being a better one. Yeah, That's, exactly. You know, smart girl. Uh, up next, we got Vincent D'Onofrio, Kingpin himself, as Lee Bowers. Uh, Bowers in the movie tells the Warren Commission that he saw a, quote, flash of light and smoke behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, even though in real life he never started saying anything like that until he started talking to JFK investigator Mark Lane, who was one of the people who came down to help out Garrison originally, uh, two years after the commission had already wrapped. So the idea that he was there on the day saying he saw this stuff it's just not true. He didn't say it for years. Um, similar thing happened with Gene Hill, who's shown in the movie uh, 20 minutes after the shooting, saying she saw a flash in the bushes of light uh, with a puff of smoke and someone who looked like Jack Ruby, quote, running from the direction of the Texas School Book Depository towards the grassy knoll. I, I don't know why Jack I Ruby's just, there. I mean, like, I'm imagining it. It's just like... It was from things like old school comedy from like the 50s are just like bang and just like smoke lingering on a black and white screen as someone runs off cartoonishly in the in, background. In the movie, in the movie, it's like a clip of her being like, I saw it, I saw it. And then it cuts to like a clip of a guy running and like it sh- like it literally shows it. But it's like, yeah. Um, so she said all that uh... stuff. Later, they even show her being intimidated by some scary like plainclothes officer guy. Men in black who's style. Like, 
He's oh, okay, like, don't okay. tell anybody about this. Forget what you saw. How many shots did you hear? Three, right? Three, right? In reality, she didn't say any of this stuff about seeing flashes of light or any of that until 1989, which was 26 <laughs> years later, not 20 minutes later. Uh, and in the movie, well, you know, human memory is infallible. Yeah. And so. in the movie, the character explains this by saying, quote, when I read my testimony as published by the Warren Commission, it was fabrication from start to finish, even though the real Gene Hill just has not said, hinted at or implied anything like this, which is just crazy. Good God. According to the movie, uh, this testimony about Jack Ruby being there on the scene in Dealey Plaza that day was substantiated by Julia Mercer, who also said she saw him, except she said in the movie that she saw him in the driver's seat of a large truck that was parked out on the street on Elm Street in Dealey Plaza and was holding up traffic, and that she saw somebody else take a rifle out of the back of the truck and walk up the hill towards the grassy knoll. Um, so this would almost be kind of creepy, right? If it wasn't widely known to have been a, a construction truck with three men in it, all of whom I had confirmed identities on the day and which all were confirmed to have left the scene in the truck together, uh, before the shooting started. Uh, so it would be scary if that wasn't the case, but also in reality, I think that the thing would be a lot more convincing if she had even said that she saw Ruby. She actually said that she saw Oswald in the truck. But it seems like Oliver Stone just kind of changed it to make it match the other story so that it was more compelling. She was like, I saw Oswald, and he was like, ah, you saw Ruby. Got it. Pretty crazy. Um, huh. Yeah. So that's the end of that segment. And now it's finally time for the last question in a segment that I like to call Threat From Within. Is it really oh, possible shit. that a threat came from inside the government and that it eventually ended up taking the life of a sitting president. And other than Oliver Stone just kind of saying that this happened, why do we think this? Right? The first piece of evidence yeah. that anybody in the Good questions yeah. that people should always ask before you believe something. First piece of evidence that anyone in the government knew anything uh, about this, at least as far as the movie is concerned, is the idea that an FBI clerk in New Orleans was on duty November 17th, 1963, one week before the shooting, and received a teletype from FBI HQ warning that somebody might be planning on killing Kennedy in Dallas. But that quote, nothing was done as a result of this happening. Uh, in reality, the FBI clerk didn't come forward until 1968, which was five years later, some dude called William S. Walter. And after investigating all 59 field offices and more than 50 employees working at the New Orleans one, no evidence of any teletype ever coming through at that time was ever found. So that's just another one that just is not true. Uh, so, another yeah. wild claim from the movie is that, quote, on November 22nd at 1234 p.m., the entire telephone system went dead in Washington for a solid hour to keep the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the assassination plan. Sure, when the president gets killed in early 1960s, there might be a little congestion or busy signals here and there on the phones because there's only so many operators, right? But yeah. Uh, and this, this, this wasn't just a D.C. thing. This was also true in New York and Boston, probably Los Angeles, you know, big cities. Uh, but for example, uh, when Sam Donaldson interviewed Oliver Stone in 1992 on ABC's primetime, he told him that, quote, I made a dozen calls during that time from the Capitol to the White House and elsewhere in Washington. The telephone system wasn't out. And Stone just looks back and says, I'll have to look into that. Uh, same thing with the idea of articles showing up in New Zealand about Oswald 
uh, complete with pictures just hours after the assassination, fingering him as the only suspect. Uh, in the movie, this is presented as evidence of stories being planted in the media, similar to the way the CIA and KGB have fought propaganda wars in the past to control public opinion. Uh, but the counter-argument is that these stories really did come out, and that it wasn't hard to get this information, because believe it or not, even in an ancient time like the 60s, people still had phones, and information travels pretty much as fast as people can talk. Uh, and in his defense, Stone basically just does the meta metaphorical equivalent of shrugging. He just like, no, no, he, that happened. Um, and really, that's the whole problem, yeah, is that Stone really never has to answer for gaps in his knowledge, right? Uh, no. And this never happens more egregiously than when Donald, Donald Sutherland shows up in the film. Uh, and delivers an almost 20-minute-long monologue to Garrison in character as the completely 100% made-up government deep-throat-type figure X, which Stone even freely admits, like, Garrison never went to Washington and met anyone. He went on Nightline, and he was like, no, nah, that was just made up. I just did all that. Um, and... Uh, a lot of what he said is just largely based on the sole testimony of the largely discredited Air Force Colonel Fletcher Prouty, Prouty uh, who never even actually met Prouty? Garrison in real life. Um, and uh, he basically says, uh, Donald Sutherland, as this character, basically says all the same stuff that I said to you guys last episode, yeah. but in a little bit more cliff notesy of a way than I did it. And... Uh, that's the that's the motive for why the CIA and the military industrial complex have a, like want to kill the president. And then, according to X, a made up character just from the movie. That's why they did it. Um, but problem is. Uh, as this quote Mathis will read for us now shows the logic of this yeah. simply doesn't make sense. And once you realize that it doesn't really matter how much you think about it, because it's never going to become more likely that what happened happened in this situation. After all, what's the big deal about joining in a conspiracy to murder the president of the United States? If any reader of this book were on the Joint Chiefs of Staff or a corporate leader and the president's policies were going to interfere with your objectives or cut into your profits, you wouldn't think twice about conspiring to murder him, would you? More seriously, even if we imagine the unimaginable, that the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and leaders of American industry were crazy enough to be willing to murder Kennedy because of his plan to end the Cold War, would they be so crazy as to not at least first try to beat him at the ballot box by putting all their money, power, and influence behind his opponent when he came up for re-election in just one year? Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, well, yes. I, make, I mean, I, I can see that point. Why would you risk murdering the president when you could just beat him in an election? Yeah, or, tr you know, or he says at least try to before you start going to the murder <laughs> world. Like, what was, like, rapidly about to happen that they needed to, like, stop? We already showed that Kennedy kind of was stuck supporting the Vietnam War, even though he wishes he didn't have to, right? And we already showed that CIA was butting heads, not just with Kennedy, but with everybody. And that's just kind of how it mm -hmm. was, right? It's not like they had a war against each other, right? Um, and Kennedy didn't dismantle the CIA like he said he was going to. He just, like, gave it some accountability. So, you know, I don't know. It wasn't like he dissed anyone or hurt anyone. Um, and in reality, you know, though I set out with hope in my heart that at least <laughs> some of what was here was worth considering as serious evidence. Uh, in the end, it, it just kind of seems like Oliver Stone's JFK movie is nothing more than some kind of strange world history fanfic by a really good director with some really bad ideas about the point of teaching people accurate history. And people should quite honestly consider it fiction when they watch it, though I do think it's a pretty sick movie. 
Um, and finally, uh, to wrap this all up for the day, we're going to have two quotes from Jack Ruby, one after the other. Uh, one is going to be from the movie version of, of Jack Ruby, and it's going to be read by Jesse. And one of the quotes is going to be from the real historical Jack Ruby from the Warren, Re- Warren Report, and that's going to be read by Mathis. Uh, so we're going to just listen to both of these, and then that's going to that's close us out. We can, talk about, we can talk about it a little bit more at the end, but here you go, Jesse. Mr. Chief Justice, do you understand that I cannot tell the truth here in Dallas? That there are people here who do not want me to tell the truth? My life is in danger. If I am eliminated, there won't be any way of knowing any bit of the truth. And consequently, a whole new form of government is going to take over the country. So that's the movie version of Jack Ruby, and here's the Warren Report version for Mathis. There was no conspiracy. I am as innocent regarding any conspiracy as any of you gentlemen in this room. No one else requested me to do anything. I never spoke to anyone about attempting to do anything. No subversive organization gave me any idea. No underworld person made any effort to contact me. It all happened that Sunday morning. And with that, my good friends, JFK 2, the Oliver Stone, is done. Thank you for watching Chronicles of Meonia special ghost crossover special side story uh, in the mini-sode this week at patreon.com slash Pod. Uh, before we carry on with the mystery of the Tower Hotel. Uh, next time I do an episode in my 8H order, it's going to be the one using the keyword hidden. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening. Hey, before we go, though, yeah. just before we go, yeah, sure. while we're on the topic of movies and uh, based on a true story yeah real quick real quick just like want to go through some things like like just think about trying to think of like movies that people would know right sure Mm -hmm. so the imitation game right the movie about alan turing yes uh if you saw that movie like uh most of that's made up in the movie the big the big reveal that the machine Right, the code break machines named after his childhood love, that's not true. The villain in that movie, the guy who doesn't like him, that's not true. Uh I mean, we could go to the movie, oh I don't know. Um The Revenant, where Leonardo DiCaprio fights a bear. That's not true. In right. fact, it's based most likely off of like a crappy eighteen twenty five newspaper article about the story. Right. Um, you could go to I don't know, the uh, movie Captain Phillips, where in that, you know, I'm the captain now, that whole scene, apparently Captain Phillips wasn't really that heroic. His crew kind of hated him. He was kind of a dick, right? Like, you go to the movie Amadeus, great film about Amadeus Mozart and Salieri being, like, enemies. That's probably made up. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I understand what you're saying. Mo, like, Bra- like Braveheart, right? That's definitely made up. Dude, that whole movie. Can I use fake. Like, Braveheart's not real? Uh, in hilariously in video game world too. Uh, it, this isn't this is not a spoiler or anything. But for Baldur's Gate, it's in the early access thing. At one point, you come across a bard who is writing the story of a fight you just had against some goblins, and he's asking you for details. And as you're telling them to him, he starts flourishing on them. At the very end, he goes, "And was the dragon with them, bronze or silver?" And you're like, there wasn't a dragon. He goes, oh, my boy, that every story benefits from a dragon. Right. And that's just what it feels like. Like that, like just it doesn't matter because it keeps the people enthralled. There is one I want to read to you just because it's so, so good. Um, 
hopefully for the for the elder millennials out there you remember the film cool runnings oh baby yeah i've seen cool runnings yeah yeah so while it is based on a true story cool runnings took a lot of creative license so first off yeah there was no coach right there was no guy they weren't failed sprinters but they were recruited by the army uh by two americans who then like got these guys from the army interested in it and during the olympics they weren't outcasts they were actually like probably everybody heroes at the olympics yeah (laughs) yeah yeah they weren't close to winning at all they were just kind of like fun to have around like that's i mean movies do that that's true if you're gonna get any of your information from movies no That most of the time when it says based on a true story, it is not true. I think the, it I is think the difference I think the difference with JFK specifically is that all those other movies, the director didn't go on a press tour around the world for twenty five years saying that everything that he said sure, in the movie yeah. that is completely based on falsehoods is like actually the real story. That's not what the history books is telling you, and the history is written by the winners. You know? And I think that that yeah. I'm willing to watch cool runnings and have a good time and know at the end that it's not true and not have it affect world events. But I think with JFK, yeah. you know, I, and I, I think I'm mostly passionate about this now because I got so deep into this theory craft, this, this world yeah. of JFK conspiracy in the first mm-hmm. place. But it, it's, it's hard not to be when you start, especially when you start to see the reality of everything. The damage done is by this movie to actual discourse about this assassination is almost a kill shot. So just remember that. And uh, patreon.com slash pod and I love you guys, and more JFK soon. Before we go, I got, I got to yank it from you one more Take time. It. Hey, we're going to be, I don't think we've announced it official yet, but we, and by we, I mean me and Alex, Jesse won't be there. And special guests. And spe- yes, and special guests and SGS and other stuff are going to be at Indie PopCon at the end of August, August 26th, I think, somewhere around there. Yeah, that's that the last, weekend. It's the last weekend of August. If you, the t- I'm told the tickets are selling out super fast for the con. So if you wanted to grab it while you can, because we're going to be doing a Chiluminati live there. Weeks, SGS hurry, will be yeah. there. And, and if you're in Chicago and you can't go to this, Jesse's going to be doing Cox and Crandor live up in Chicago at the same weekend. We're sold out. I don't need Never you to Never mind. Show you up. can't be there. You can hang out outside <laughs> the venue Unless and you wait for tickets, them. Unless you want to tickets, have fun, yeah. but I don't need anyone <laughs> else there. I don't need uh, fights. Yeah. And next episode, boys, it's H.H. Holmes time. Oh, shit. So we'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode. We're off to Patreon, as Alex said. Uh, Alex, huge commend on that. That was fucking, these two parts were, were super good. Love it was a dancer. great breakdown of the movie. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back uh, next week. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the. I don't know who they are. There's two. One. Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. No. Neo and Trinity. No. I don't understand, and I probably never will. Let me just tell you right now that there's two. Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield. I'm telling you, I think he literally just looked up famous duos. Cheech and Chong. And has been going through the list ever since. I'm trying to dig deep. Which one of you is uh, Dick Powell? Me? Your name's Jesse Cox. <laughs> I want to love I want to lose I want to lose
everybody. Welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Alex and Jesse. Like a shooting star across the sky that's actually a UFO.